Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Brown University pre-college programs, where high school students can prepare for college success, experience college life, and make new friends from around the world. More than 300 courses are available. Precollege.brown.edu. Today on Boston Public Radio, later, Trump is supposed to hold his fake news awards. And a lot of people think yesterday's press briefing with White House Dr. Ronnie Johnson should at least get honorable mention. Is Trump really in excellent health? If he is, and as the doctor says, it's all about good genes, what about those of us who didn't win the genetics lottery? Medical ethicist Art Kaplan joins us to put that in perspective. From there, we open the lines and ask you for your take on Trump's physical. And we kick off Hour 2 with national security expert Juliette Kayyem for her take on the latest developments surrounding Steve Bannon and the Russia investigation. Last year, the people of Maine voted to expand Medicaid, but Governor Paul LePage is doing what he can to stop it. We'll talk to the woman who's committed to making this the law of the land, Maine's, Maine's House Speaker, Sarah Gideon. That and more is coming up on Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH. Rowdy, I am Marjorie Egan. You are listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Good morning, Jim. Hey there. How are you? Fake News Awards later today. Can't wait. Can't wait. No, I can't wait. I've, CNN, I think, is going to win. You think so? I think so. I don't even know if it'll happen. So in any case, how could President Trump, a borderline obese man who lives on McDonald's, fish jigs pizza, drinks all those Diet Cokes, and never exercises, be considered, quote, in excellent health? It's called genetics. I don't know. It's uh, some people have, uh, you know, just great genes. You know, uh, I told the president that if he had a healthier diet over the last uh, 20 years, he might live to be 200 years old. I don't know. Well, let me just say Marjorie Egan is saying, thank God he wasn't eating healthier the last <laughs> 20. That wasn't necessary, Jim. I didn't say that. That, of course, was White House Dr. Rear Admiral Ronnie Jackson going over the president's annual physical results. Joining us in line for his take on this and other medical ethical headlines is Art Kaplan. Art, of course, is the doctors William F. and Virginia Connolly Mini Chair and Director of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU's Langone Medical Center. He's also the co-host of the Everyday Ethics Podcast. Hey there, Art. Hey, how are you? I had three Big Macs for breakfast, actually, and I've never <laughs> felt better. I was going to say, I know Woody Allen is uh, in trouble these days, uh, people bailing out on him, yep. but didn't he suggest in Sleeper that we would all discover someday that uh, Hot fudge McDonald's is good yeah. for you? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I guess yeah. it is. But, but, you know, certainly this is not the first time we've all heard the uh, genes are destiny argument. And it could be very true for the president, despite the Big Macs and despite his being borderline obese. Well, um, he's driving a lot of uh, doctor friends of mine crazy in that his profile is risky. He's got uh, he's on Crestor, which is uh, one of those, uh, you know, got to control the cholesterol kind of drugs. And uh, while his blood pressure was good and his heart was good, he still got that abdominal fat, which uh, a lot of uh, docs don't like to see. Um, you know, I, I, there's a difference between is he healthy and did he do well on his physical? And I think I'm ready to say, even knowing that they buff these things up a little bit through the White House, they check before he sort of gives the overall report um, that he's, you know, fine, um, at least physically. We didn't get the psychiatric part. But in terms of risk factors and lifestyle choice, you know, bad example. Do not follow him. No exercise and a bad diet. And, uh, um, you know, that's a bad combination. So I think there's a difference between how's he doing today 
which apparently is good, and uh, what might happen to him, which is, you know, still risky, not no certainties. As for genes, yeah, they do count. You know, there's no doubt about that. Um, they're not uh, something that is, uh, well, let's put it this way. You could have two people who have parents who live a long time and seem pretty healthy, and you can still overwhelm that if you smoke a lot and uh, so forth. But yeah, genetics counts too. It does. So uh, you are buying the numbers. I have to say, we spoke to a noted physician yesterday who did not buy the numbers. This is right before the results were announced. That, of course, is the noted medical doctor, John King from CNN. When he was with us, here's what John had to say. I've stood next to the President of the United States. I know what I weigh. The President is not 237 pounds. Uh, he's, just, he's just not. I'm sorry. I'm lucky he's magical. So, you know, uh, uh, and John always plays down the middle. It was an odd moment with our buddy, John King. Uh, 30 out of 30 on the cognitive, this Montreal cognitive assessment mm-hmm. version, uh, whatever it's called. Uh, I looked at it uh, before. Is that credible, too? It's, it, it is. is. Okay. It's a memory test. It right. is not a psychiatric test. So, so what does it tell if us? Your memory starts to go. You know, you don't do well on that test. So it tells me that he is minimally cognitively competent. It's not some kind of extensive, you know, uh, cognitive up and down with all kinds of skills uh, closely assessed. But he doesn't have, you know, dementia. He doesn't have any kind of serious Alzheimer's, it screens out at that level. Hold so on, hold on for a second. I mean, this is asking you... Well, don't you... give this away. We're going to do this with listeners a little later. Okay. You can well, do one. Just let me mention, it yeah. asked you. It shows you pictures of animals as one of the things and asked Camel. you to identify them and draw... Camel, he says. Camel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You haven't seen the picture yet, are you? <laughs> but I'm really cognitively with it. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> okay, but the one last thing uh, about this... Uh, uh, Though it, we talked to, I, we have had this discussion with you. I would say fifteen times in the last yep. year that uh, your belief and we subscribe to your belief that every candidate of a major party and every elected president every year or two years should both have a comprehensive physical and a comprehensive mental exam. Briefly, how would you do it differently if you were the person in charge of what the chief executive of the United States had to agree to every year or so? So remember, 14 of the 15 times I kept saying it's a biochemistry exam with an electrical exam. So they look at his heart. That's what physicals do. And they don't see any problems in uh, his pumping and his ejection fraction and his heart seems okay. And then they measure his urine analysis and they go into his blood uh, chemistry and all that. So that's what a physical does. A physical is not, is not, is not fitness for duty. I know the doctor, the rear admiral yesterday said he thought he was fit for duty, but that isn't what you would do if you were really trying to examine Trump or anybody else. What you'd do is you'd give him a two-day exam with a battery of five or six docs, one or two of whom came from the mental health side of the street. You'd probe hard for psychiatric problems, since that is just as important to the ability to do the job as his urine analysis. And you'd have uh, interviews with his friends, his family. You'd be probing there to say any changes in behavior. Do you ever see him depressed? Do you ever see him sleepless, wandering around? Is he drinking? That kind of stuff. You do kind of a, uh, immediate uh, associates I'm laughing here of the unfired people, but you know what I mean. You'd be talking to people who see him regularly and probing around to see if there's any behavioral changes. That's a fitness for duty exam. We don't have it. 
I don't know that we're ever going to get it because Congress really doesn't want to impose it and politicians don't want to ask each other to do it. But that is what's necessary if you're really going to say okay. is this guy or any president able to do the job. One last very quick question. So let's assume they do someday agree to that. Where do you draw the line, Mr. Medical Ethics, between the right to privacy or whatever he or she mm -hmm. someday has of the president of the United States and the public's right to know? Well, on the physical, we have no right to know. He could have said the physical was done and I choose not to release anything, just like his taxes. Okay. And we could all then spend another year speculating right. about whether he's crazy or demented or bloated or whatever. Um, good for my business, not so much necessarily for the nation. But uh, I think at the end of the day, with the mandated assessment of fitness for duty, he should be reporting to Congress. I know that will disappoint everybody in the media, but, you know, if he does have problems for national security reasons, you probably don't want to splash that all over the place. Mm -hmm. So Congress can trigger the 25th Amendment. That's how you'd have to do something about it. That's the group that needs to know. Fair enough. We're talking to Art Kaplan, medical ethicist extraordinaire. So Art Kaplan, uh, this is one of the most horrible stories, and I, you were quoted <clears throat> extensively in this piece about— and Making it horrible thereby, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, no, just kind of—I mean, anyway. Washington tell us Post. what happened at the University of Mar uh, Maryland Medical Center involving a uh, young female patient. So a demented— clearly severely mentally ill person went into the ER there in Baltimore. I believe with a cut. I think she had got a cut on her body or face. Yeah. I don't remember. So she needed stitches and she went in and the next thing you know, she's sitting on a bench in front of the hospital and a good Samaritan comes by with a cell phone and sees the security guards positioning her on the bench and saying goodbye to her in uh, 30 degree weather there. And, uh, he says, what are you doing? Why are you putting this lady out here in a hospital gown when it's freezing out? And uh, he tries to talk to her, and she's not responsive because she's clearly uh, impaired mentally. And the security guards just walk away, and then he videos. So a couple of things. First, he did a heroic thing, Good Samaritan thing. Great that he took the time to video uh, with his cell phone and all that. Good for him. Um and what was going on at the hospital is they were doing something we call dumping, which is when you're in the ER and you don't really want to deal with somebody because they don't have any money or they're uh, mentally ill uh, or you're just overwhelmed with lots of people, you just say, you know what your discharge plan is? You go sit out there at the bus stop. In your in your hospital in gown? In your hospital gown. With in socks on, gown. no mm -hmm. shoes. She was staggering and screaming, the Post reported, and it was so cold that there was there was unmelted snow uh, on the ground. I mean, this is they, they could have killed her, obviously. Hey, you know what? This is what a uh, S-hole nation does to its most vulnerable citizens. This is... Uh, the president should be jumping up and down about this phenomena rather than uh, impugning what goes on in uh, other countries around the world. You can't have – by the way, it's illegal. We have a law. There's something called EMTALA, which I won't bore you with, but it's a federal law that basically says you have to take people into emergency rooms and you have to have a discharge plan. It can be, you know, you go into the shelter, you go into the halfway house, here's some clothes. Um, that kind of thing, or you're going to sit over there till morning until the temperature warms up. Um, so it's illegal to dump. 
But it goes on, and it goes on for a variety of reasons. Overwhelmed emergency rooms, which we're about to overwhelm some more, who make cuts in various states to Medicaid, and we don't fund community health centers, and CHIP doesn't get funded and all that sort of stuff. It builds back the overwhelmed ER, particularly in flu season, I might add. Um, callousness on the part of healthcare providers, just saying, you know, I don't want to deal with, sometimes we call them frequent flyers. They cycle back in and out of the ER. They're mentally ill. I don't know what to do with them. I'm going to throw them back out. And it's our fault, right? We got homeless, mentally ill all over the place, and we're not doing anything about it. Um, We deinstitutionalized people years ago. That's nice. And now they sit on a corner in freezing weather and uh, scream at one another, and we're not fixing the problem. So as much as I want to say what happened in the hospital was bad, we are not We've we've got a completely frayed safety net. And by the way, most people at the time of deinstitutionalization cheered, saying this is the right thing to do. But policymakers didn't deal with the other half of the equation. That was the problem, right? What to do? Well, it was like some bad, you know, uh, European movie. They uh, went in and uh, gave the inmates the keys and said, "Run yeah. away now." And then we didn't build any programs. It was supposed to be yeah. halfway houses and neighborhood uh, shelters and, you know, a kind of outpatient sort of thing without the institutionalization. And I'm going to say, and, you know, email me if you don't like it, but we need to rethink some of the institutionalization since there's no – everybody doesn't want these clinics in their backyard. we got a big NIMBY problem. And I'm not calling for the asylum, but – Really? Mentally ill people? We're going to tell them you're on the street and you can rot there with your rights on? Is anything going to happen to the people? I don't know if it already has. Is there any – I mean, it seems to me this is criminal behavior. I'm not – obviously, I'm not – Yeah, yeah, there is this law, and they broke it, no doubt. But So, I mean, I I checked on this. You know, we don't know how bad the problem of dumping is because it's clearly done – you know, under cover of, of night, it's not like we we know all the cases in which somebody was bounced out of a ER. And I should add one other thing. You'll love this. Some places close their ERs so they wouldn't have to do this. <laughs> so instead of getting legal liability, just said, well, you know, we won't have an emergency room and it won't stay open and then we won't get in any trouble. So, you know, fewer places to go. Um the IG, Inspector General of what's called uh, Health and Human Services, they're responsible for enforcing this law. Over the past 10 years, it looks like they penalized, uh, excuse me, examined 200 cases. And as far as I can see in their latest report, 3% of the hospitals got any fine or punishment. Talking to Art Kaplan. <clears throat> okay, let's move uh, get closer to home here, at least to, to us here in Boston. Uh, this is incredible. In this Me Too moment, the gynecologist <laughs> at a public meeting who displayed a photo that uh, got everybody all worked up as well it should. Tell us the story, Art. You told it. Basically, a uh, what would we call it? Um, the personal statu- intimate yeah. photography? Yeah, yeah it's a, a statue, statue of a famous G- Italian statue yeah, Juliet, of Juliet. From Romeo, Romeo and Juliet. And, Juliet. Right. and the surgeon, uh, uh, but in this particular picture, this he, the, he and the, the, the surgeon and the colleague are touching their breasts. I'm sorry, did I call them the gynecologist? Not their breasts, her breasts. Her breasts, right? Yes. They're not touching their own breasts. That is correct. <laughs> so uh, on the uh, happier news front of grabbing statues, we had a guy in Central Park here in New York named Sims 
who perfected uh, hysterectomies and many important OBGYN mm -hmm. procedures. And they built a statue to him and had it in Central Park for decades and decades. It's right across from the New York Academy of Medicine, about 105th Street. And the statue is going to move because he actually performed and practiced all these procedures on African-American slaves without anesthesia. Oh, oh, so oh. We've got a problem with statues in medicine. We're honoring people we shouldn't. And then these yo-yos, in this day and age, really, are out there... Uh, I don't know what to call it, making love to stones. Yeah. Um, well, you know, so this... completely inappropriate. You can't do it. It's not funny. It's exactly the kind of sexism that women worry about, particularly in uh, OBGYN. Um, did you say, leading... by the way, did either of you say where he... Brigham and Women's. No, no, no. Where well, It's Dr. John Einerson or something, yes. his name from... He's did you say where he minimally no, invasive gynecology. Where he sh chose to show... It's bad enough that he took the photograph and yeah, he's proud of it. Yeah, a big speech in a medical conference. With women and OBGYN. In the Yeah, right. in the audience. Who went nuts, Who went by nuts. the way, appropriately so, sort of saying, what? So, um, in the... Uh, I think he just joined the Me Too as an Idiot mm -hmm. Club. Well, you know, you know, can I read you a paragraph from the story? Liz Kowalczyk wrote it in The Globe. It's a great story. His speech has had long-lasting repercussions, helping to prompt a reexamination of what many female gynecological surgeons say is a pervasive culture of sexism and sexual misconduct in a corner of medicine that is supposed to be all about caring mm -hmm. for uh, uh, women. How, what's the deal there? Well, I mean, I think people have said they're still joking around, sexist comments. They're still docs. Remember our friend, uh, Dr. Nasser, who's been the, uh, the Olympics guy, the Olympics yeah. guy. Oh my what God. Did he, do? He, he used his exam to molest not only Olympic athletes, but many other women mm -hmm. as well under the guise of an examination. So look, you gotta be, what's the phrase? Purer than Caesar's wife. Is that the right? Phrase? I mean, you gotta really be careful when you're dealing with sexuality as a male around women. I'm not saying men can't be gynecologists uh, and obstetricians and all that, I but you really have to have are. the right, you know, ethics, the right bedside manner. Now, so, all right, let me ask you a question. Some people say that it really doesn't matter what kind of ethics and what kind of statues people are showing them grabbing the breasts of mm -hmm. because they're great surgeons. And I know oh, someone God, I know someone who who had surgery a couple of days after a particular surgeon in Boston was on the front page of the Boston Globe with Metro, complaints actually. from from female surgeons that he talked about the Kama Sutra in the operating room, said sexual comments to these female surgeons, plus had a statue or a sculpture, I should say, of an eight-inch whatever on his desk. In his office. What would you say to a person who overlooked all that <laughs> because he was supposedly a good well, surgeon? I don't want to say his name is Jim Browdy, by the way. <laughs> what I would say is there are a lot of surgeons out there are probably almost as good, and uh, I'm not sure that's the, the guy you want to really bring your business to. However, it is true that there are parts of medicine, radiology, where you don't have any contact with a patient, where somebody could be pretty good. It is of more concern when you have direct doctor-patient things. But even a surgeon, you know, doing a procedure is going to prep you and presumably talk to you and prepare you for what's going on. I don't think a lot of women are going to want to sit there with his uh, artificial sex part exactly. toy play on the exactly. desk. Exactly. You wonder if he takes it down when females come in. Probably not. Can I be clear? I can neither confirm nor deny <laughs> 
that that was my see, surgeon. Did you see the NH whatever yourself, Jim? <laughs> no, it was gone. Jim? It was gone because the Globe story had appeared two days oh, okay. earlier. So, but I'm not but, saying it was way, me either. I, I, let me let me say this. I I, I want to tell you yes. one little tale and then something upbeat. The little tale is there's still parts of medicine specialties. I'll name one, although again I'm not trying to just impugn them, but you know a place with a lot of orthopedic residents when they got done with their training. Uh, I did get a call from a woman at this place, not Boston, not New York, who said, gee, they're going out to a strip club to celebrate. Do you think that's right? So, you know, some yeah. cultural attitudes still prevail. Bad news. Good news, a lot more women coming into medicine. That's good. It shifts at least the sexism part. I'm not sure everybody's nicer because women are there, but at least people won't put up with traditional male, you know, uh, behavior that's gotten Hollywood in trouble, that's gotten, uh, you know, Silicon Valley in trouble and so on. Medicine's not been immune from harassing and, and inappropriate behavior. So that is starting to shift. I'm sure that it's different when I see what's going on out there today from 30 years ago. You know, one last thing, uh, Art Kaplan, we're going to talk to the Democratic Speaker of the main House of Representatives in about an hour or so who's been in an ongoing battle with Governor Paul LePage about uh, Medicaid expansion. And I think everybody mm-hmm. remembers the voters. I think it was 59% approved it on the ballot. First time it's ever happened in this country. Right. Uh, this is happening at the exact same time that the Trump administration is uh, uh, imposing uh, a work requirement for certain Medicaid recipients. Where do you stand on this, and both personally and where's the evidence of what it produces or doesn't produce? Well, what comes to mind is, uh, can I have some more, sir? I mean, this yeah. is workhouse stuff. You know, Charles Dickens, where are you? Come back, help us. Look, Medicaid, Let me. I think I may have said this before, but I'll say it again. The composition, I don't know what it is in Maine, but I'm sure it's something like this, of Medicaid is about 50% children. So I guess if Trump wants to revive the coal industry, they'll be back in the mine soon. Um disabled people, and then uh, elderly, because there's a lot of people spending down to get grandma into Medicaid so they can get her into a nursing home. It'll be interesting to see how that employment well, works but, but, out. But in fairness to Trump, my understanding is the the uh, the woman whose name I forget, Verma, who runs uh, Medicare and Medicaid, yeah. who's uh, is supporting this, that it does excludes disabled people, excludes the elderly. Right, so there's nobody but left. Well, they point. say it's able-bodied, single people without kids. So is that a bad idea for them? No, I think all three of them should go to work. (laughs) I mean, well, that's, that's most of them do work because most of them do work in that problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then they're going to get a job that doesn't give them health benefits anyway. I mean, where are they going to work? McDonald's or Walmart. They don't get health insurance just by uh, doing that kind of thing. Uh, I, I think it's the stupidest connection between work, meaning you got to earn your health care and Medicaid. What I do believe is. Everybody should have a right, a right, a right to basic health care because that's how you have opportunity. And opportunity, if you can't see or hear or sleep or ambulate, then you're not going to be much of a worker. So I'd flip it on its head. Uh, Sure, I'd like to see people go to work, but let's get everybody, everybody, a right to health care, to basic health care. Let them then function and compete in the market. If you do it the other way, what you're just saying is healthcare is something that's a privilege and you have to earn it. And I don't mm-hmm. believe it. And I think the Democrats, by the way, 
in even uh, Obama and the uh, um, attempt to push through Obamacare never convinced the American people, never tried to sell it as you have a right to health care. Now, yeah. it may not be a face transplant or, you know, cosmetic uh, chin adjustment. I'm talking about basic care like you'd find uh, covered, say, at the VA. That might be a good standard to follow. But this notion that you have to work and earn your health care in a market-based society, I think is it's just at its core unethical, it's cruel, it's stupid, and it's a waste of money because there aren't that many people in these uh, programs like Medicaid that can work anyway. So, Art Kaplan, what's on the Everyday Ethics podcast? Medicaid. Um, <laughs> we're going to go right back to the work and earning thing. It, it so bothers me yeah. that we have a society that is linked. You get your health insurance through your job, right? That's how people, a lot of people get their health insurance. I think you should say you get your health insurance because you pay taxes. It comes out of your you know, tax income, and if you don't earn anything, then you're not going to pay for it. But this whole idea that you get it through your job, what we did was we built a middle-class entitlement, meaning it's all pre-tax income for that, mm -hmm. and the middle and the upper class don't want to give it up. So we wind up saying, let's find those three guys who can work, and then uh, you know, we'll help pay for Medicaid by the vast wages they'll be bringing us from their uh, uh, sort of uh, McDonald's-type job. By the way, my understanding is there's a three-for-one on the fish wish today at McDonald's, <laughs> so I'll see you maybe 2-2-30. Well, maybe, maybe that's what Donald Trump is angry about when he goes in to get his uh, fish sandwiches. He thinks the workforce isn't up to snuff, so he's trying to bolster it with his beautiful, Medicaid thing. Beautiful thing. I, Kaplan, Our thank pleasure you very always, much. Thanks. Hey, my pleasure. I Kaplan joins us every week. He's the Dr. William F. and Virginia Comedy Midi Chair and Director of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU's Langone Medical Center. He's also the co-host of the Everyday Ethics Podcast. All right, thanks much. Okay, coming up, we are opening the lines asking you about President Trump's physical. Are you more obsessed with his cholesterol or your own? That's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Mardrigan. As we just, as you heard Marjorie say, today President Trump is supposed to hold his, well, she didn't say his, fake news awards ceremony later this afternoon. It seems a lot of people think yesterday's press briefing with White House Dr. Ronnie Johnson should get at least honorable mention. We know Trump doesn't exercise because he thinks we all have a finite battery and he wants to save his juice for more important things. Do you remember that from a few months yeah, ago? Yeah, what's he saving the juice for? I don't know. The we golf know he gets probably. very little sleep and then he eats a lot of junk food. So there's some cognitive dissonance going on when we put that reality next to the other reality that he is apparently in excellent health. At yesterday's press briefing, 40 minutes into what had been a pretty exhaustive explication of Trump's health, one reporter <laughs> remained incredulous. Explain to me how a guy who eats McDonald's and fried chicks and all those Diet Cokes and who never exercises is in as good a shape as he says he's in. We're opening up the lines asking you what you make of Trump's results. If the takeaway is he just has good genes, as the doctor said, does that make you wonder what exactly is the point of following all the rules? Do you think his health results now give the rest of us an excuse to live off Diet Coke and fast food? And what does it say about all of us? If we don't want these results to be true, I mean, I, I have spoken to more than one person, let's put it that way, who's buying that. Isn't it good news that the president of the United States 
is fit and capable. The number is 877-301-8970. Well, you know what's discouraging about it? It no matter how you feel about the president. I mean, most of us, you know, it's January 1st. What do you do on January 1st? You make your news resolutions. You're going to mm-hmm. lose 20 pounds. You're going to go to the gym. You're sure. going to stop, you know, having seven muffins, you know, every morning for, for breakfast all week long. And to hear that somebody who's stuffing down the Big Macs and the French fries mm-hmm. and the Kentucky Fried Chicken and the Coca-Colas and doesn't exercise at all and is obese He's one pound under. Okay, he's borderline obese. He's in great health. It's kind of calls into question. Well, what the heck am I doing? The only thing you could say is, okay, he's got great genes. But as we all know, uh, people that have great genes, I thought they had great genes because their parents died at ninety. Somehow, a lot of those people don't make it past you know seventy. So you never know about those genes, Jim. They could cut either way. I hope they're wrong, of course, because I should be killing over any second based on my poor parents that killed over in an early age. But in any case, that's what it is, don't you think? Well, I do. And- and do you know that the guy, some very clever person, obviously cleverer than uh, I, do you know what they're calling this whole back and forth about this? What are they calling the it? The Gerther controversy, <laughs> which I think is a great <laughs> line. Gerther. Boy, do I wish I'd come with that. By the way, on the obesity front, if you haven't been paying attention, he's apparently one pound short of obese, but only because he's 6'3". But Politico or some organization went back and looked at the records in New York State at his driver's license. And six his two. driver's license says he's only 6'2". And if he's only 6'2". <laughs> He's obese, so who who knows? And by the way, on a cognitive test, this uh, there was developed. Uh, Tori, one of our coworkers, gave us a really interesting a piece by uh, I don't know where it was, Washington Post or something, about the guy who conceived of this Montreal cognitive assessment where Trump scored thirty out of thirty. He's a Lebanese immigrant to Canada, and he's very proud, and he's hoping that the, this test was used, and he's hoping that uh, that. The uh, the president's uh, views on immigration may change as a result of this. But he makes the same point that our Kaplan just made to us, what? that the test that he designed, this Montreal Cognitive Assessment, is, uh, is nothing uh, like a complete psychological profile. It's not a psychiatric <coughs> assessment. It says that he doesn't have early signs of dementia, those sort of things okay, that were at least okay, suggested okay, Jim. in the book by, you, uh, uh, what's his name, Michael I'm going to give you a question from the test. You ready? Okay. Repeat. This sentence back to me. I only know that John is the one to help today. What? I only know. I only know that John is the one to help today. That's one of the thirty questions. You are all set. I could be president of the United States. There's nothing. Is that really one of the questions you're making that up? Okay. uh, Is that really a question? Here's here's another one. You haven't answered my question. Is that really a question? That's that's one of the questions. Okay, go ahead. That's one of the questions. Yeah. Okay. Here's another one. Now you have you you have to remember these words. You can't write them down. Okay. You're going to cheat, so I I don't know if I. No, I'm not. I'm looking at you right in the eyes. You have to remember these words. Face. Face. Velvet. Velvet. Church. Church. Daisy. Daisy. Red. Hold on to those words. Okay. Face, velvet church daisy red. Face, Talk to a couple of callers. Veil velvet church church daisy uh, red. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. By the way, just one update on this, which is interesting, but I would argue troubling. And for those of us who are a little bit skeptical about what the doctor said, even though the doctor served under George W. Bush and Barack Obama, it's not he's not handpicked by the president. Sanjay Gupta is just on CNN. He's the CNN chief medical correspondent. And he said that he believes the tests reveal that the president has heart disease. He looked back to 2009 and says the president started to have, quote, these tests that are actually looking for the presence of calcium in the blood vessels that lead to the heart. When they get to a certain range, that means he has heart disease. Well, then Sanjay Gupta talked about his interaction, this is on CNN, with the guy who did the doctor, the Navy doctor, who did the uh, test, Navy Rear Admiral Ronnie Jackson. Listen to this. 
This is Gupta speaking. It was interesting when I spoke to Dr. Jackson. At first, he said he passed all the tests with flying colors. That's what he told the American people. When I asked him specifically about that that test, he did then concede that, in fact, the president does have heart disease. Now, in all seriousness, just for a minute, because we're treating this in a semi-amusing way. Yep. He passed with flying colors. He's in, quote, excellent health, are the words of Dr. Jackson. But he acknowledges to Sanjay Gupta that, in Correct. fact, he does have heart disease. Now, even if it's not troubling for a man his age, do you not think that Dr. Jackson maybe misled the press and the American people well, don't we call that, in his Jim? press conference yesterday? Fake news. No, I'm serious. I mean, Yes, he did. He, he misled him. But, you know, we shouldn't get upset about this because why? Harry the Peanut or Harry the Pea, the best doctor in CDC, yeah. he is now in the, being cared for in the cardiac unit at Angel Memorial. Is that really true? He's, he has heart disease. He's old. He's 15. doesn't mean he's going to die, as the vet told me. You had to have him on the medicine. Yeah. And he could go on, you know, for a few more years. No, but by the way, a lot of people and have heart so disease that are fine. But that's not the point. The point is we were told he was in excellent health. Health, and he passed the test with flying colors. You're not in excellent health and passing with flying colors. If it, it, well, maybe you could say you are, but you can't fail to disclose that this calcium level shows that he has some level of heart disease. It's just, uh, I'm sorry, uh, it's just it's troubling. But in any case, what's your reaction to all this? Before we get Jim, to your calls, Jim, what? Repeat the words, please. The five words. Don't look down. Velvet, church. What? <laughs> Velvet, church, red. Was that one of them? Red. You got three, two more, two Velvet. more. F- face. Face. You got four. F- well, that's good enough. They say, isn't it? F- face. Velvet. Church. Red. Uh, Gerther controversy. <laughs> okay. I heard you're, that. You're, oh, what was the old... fifth one? Daisy. Daisy. I said Daisy. You did. You did. No, I didn't actually. <laughs> okay. Well, let's not do any more of those. Here is a reporter asking Dr. Johnson. I can't believe I didn't get it. He got them all, and I didn't get them all. Well, it's not clear that he got them all. He might have gotten four out of five. A reporter asked Dr. Johnson yesterday at the uh, press conference about what the president does for exercise. Does the president do anything at all right now in terms of exercise? What, 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 what is his daily exercise routine if there is one? So I would say right now on a day-to-day basis, he doesn't have a dedicated, defined exercise program. And uh, so that, you know, th- th- that's what I'm working on. Uh, the good part is that, uh, you know, uh, uh, we can we can we can build on that pretty easily. I'm sorry so, uh, again. <laughs> oh, so, oh, OK, he doesn't have a dedicated, defined exercise program, otherwise known as he has no exercise. program. Well, he golfs, go- he well, he does play golf. And by the way, if they consider that golf and a lot of people, does he walk or do a cart? I don't know. I don't know. Golf but cart? I think the thing is, though, with golfing, because I've had this debate a lot yeah. in my family. Everybody's a big golfer. Yeah. I think. You have to be – it's good for you, but it's walk, not as good as too? a continual – for your heart, it's not as good as a continual aerobic of I understand walking that, at a But fast it's something pace. if you walk at least. But yes, I think I've moving. seen him in car- carts. I don't I, know. I don't about. know if he walks or has a cart. He certainly has to walk to hit the uh, chip shot out of the sand trap on the 17th yeah, okay. hole. All right. So we want to get your thoughts on this uh, uh, test. Are you relieved that everything is good? Are you dubious that the uh, results as announced by Dr. Johnson are – uh, legit. And do you worry? I mean, what do you say when your kid comes home and says who you've been trying to get? I mean, I was a little fat kid, as we've discussed a yeah. million times. Now, if I went home to my mother, who probably wouldn't have cared in light of the fact she gave me a salami sandwich every night before I went to bed. <laughs> but so it's not her fault, by the way. I With was an a, extra piece of, of salami, salami on, top. on top. But when you're a little kid who you're in all seriousness, we're worried about weight and we are the fattest nation. Well, second fattest nation on earth. And our kids are much heavier than they should be. And again, I know about what I'm speaking of here, when your kid says, I'd like two 
Big Macs, two fisherman jigs, a Diet Coke, and whatever else this guy eats, chocolate ice cream or whatever yeah. it is. Two scoops. In all seriousness, what, what do you say? I think you say, little Jimmy, you too can be president <laughs> of the United States. And by the way, you know what I love the story the other day? Was it the Skittles or the Starburst? I think Starburst, it was Starburst. Starburst, yeah. Oh, yeah. Where uh, Kevin McCarthy, who's the uh, minor- number two, number two in, the, in, the, in the House, house. yeah, discovered that the president yeah. likes certain kinds of Starburst. I think he likes cherry and another flavor or something. Me too. I do too. So actually. Kevin uh, McCarthy went out and had a staff find massive amounts yeah. of Starburst and then separate out the president's two favorites. How, when was the last time you had a Starburst? Actually, in all seriousness, like two days ago. I love Starburst. You do? Yeah, I did. Okay. Well, you know what I did? Again. I put them inside a Big Mac. And, <laughs> no, but I actually did have Starburst. Then you're in Mac. sync. Usually Let's that's go. something you have when your kids are little. Allie in a car. You're on Boston Public Radio with Marjorie and me, Jim Brady. Thank you for calling. Hi. There. Um, Hi. I, not only do I think that this is all malarkey, um, I think that it was an embarrassment because he's clearly incredibly unhealthy. The question that I have, and I know that he did like a dementia test. I don't understand why there's not more parity between his mental and his physical health and why we don't have a report on his, on his overall emotional mental health. I don't because, understand the the answer, we've discussed this. We discussed it with Art Kaplan this morning and many other times. Presidents don't want to agree to it. And Congress doesn't want to mandate it for fear that they themselves may be subject to those tests. But you are right. The fact that that there is not a consensus that the American people, whether whoever is president, are entitled to know about the mental, the state of the mental health of the man so far and someday woman who leads the country is ridiculous. I'm totally Although, with you. Know you know something, though? You know what I'm worried about? Because right. we know that the person that most of us consider the greatest president of all time, Abraham Lincoln, had, had depression. serious depression yeah. problems at a time when you could not get any medication for those depression problems. So I, And there's such a stigma and such a bias against mental health issues. I, I, I think that if you did have depression issues, anxiety issues, you had those kinds of things, you wouldn't be able to run for well, president. Well, what you should do is do some public education about the fact the fact that some people have mental health concerns, which many of us do, does not mean we're not qualified to be president know, of the United States or something else. I know, but I think that would else. be a huge hurdle to yeah, but, overcome. Excuse me. So the flip side is better, better for us not to know, for Congress not to know, and have a person with his finger mm-hmm. on a much larger button than Kim Jong-un? I, I'm serious. I mean, that's ridiculous. I, I, I think I think maybe the the, the the grandiosity and the narcissistic personality disorder are bigger deals. Well, than the, the thing is to start the to do a better job. We've made progress, but do a better job about uh, dealing with the stigma that exists still about mental health issues. But uh, the public, when you choose to be president of the United States or want to be president of the United States, I think you give up a certain amount of privacy. By the way, Art's position on that is that the information should not be available to the public, which would solve your problem. You hear what he said? The information should be available to Congress. And that's uh, it's not great, but it's better than what we currently have. A lot of have. hostility in the email. But what about? Carmen says, I want him to keep eating McDonald's in bed and <laughs> well, hope it nice. catches up with him. Godspeed. Well, the Secret Service is going to come get her. So I would suggest you not send those kind of emails. <laughs> Let's go to Kevin in a car. Kevin, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Thank you so much for calling. Hi. Hey, guys. Good morning. Hey. Um, <clears throat> so... What bothers me about this more than the fact that the president might be healthy despite eating McDonald's, and I say that um, because I eat a big sugary coffee and a gross breakfast sandwich from a takeout place every morning. Excellent. Um, And I still, uh, my numbers are good. I'm, I'm just a little obese. 
Um, are, are you guys hearing that? Or is that yeah, we heard every yeah, word. Yeah, And your point is what? No, I, <laughs> sorry, something else is coming through. No, 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 it's fine. On it's, my end. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, <clears throat> uh, so no, what's my your point? point is my numbers are good while I'm considered obese. What bothers me is the email chain that suppo- that Rachel Maddow supposedly uncovered. Have you heard about that one? Nope. No, what is it? What is it? It's signed R-O-N-N-I-E, Jackson. And he spells Not it with a Y? R-O-N-N-Y. Oh, we'll yeah. ch- I don't. I didn't know about that. We will check. Uh, I don't. Uh, I. I am. I don't know about that. We'll. We'll check on it, Kevin. And thank you for the call. I mean, all I do know is. Uh, uh, I don't. As I said, I don't know about that. I do know about Sanjay Gupta, who I respect deeply, other than the fact that he had a horrible position on medical marijuana until he had an epiphany years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, this whole heart disease thing and saying he's in excellent health and he could live to two hundred if he had eaten better. I think that's a little troubling. I think it's misleading in terms of the doctor's presentation in the press and the public yesterday. 877-301-8970. We're talking about the uh, physical of the President of the United States. The emailers are on top of the President's golf habits. Uh, Paul says he's done a Twitter, uh, not a Twitter search, a Google search, and the President is in a cart. Doug says that uh, walking, especially carrying the bag, is exercise, um, but the, the President also takes a cart, takes lots of mulligans, and faces no pressure. Yeah, and also, you know, before every Bill putt, Clinton was famous. if you take a bite out of a Big Mac, it, it sort of, it, <laughs> I'm not a big golfer, but it does tend to cancel out. <laughs> we got to take a break. 877-301-8970. We are talking about the president's uh, physical health, the test he took yesterday, asking you if you're reassured that he's in good health, or is it pathetic that we're even fixating on this? On the other hand, you may be among the skeptics. Do you really think he's just one Pound away from clinical obesity. That conversation continues on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brady, Marjorie. And if you're just tuning in, we're talking about President Trump's physical, asking what you make of it. Is the primary takeaway that it's all about genetics, or at least in his case it is? Should we even bother trying to be healthy if it all comes down to genes? Is it pathetic that we're obsessed with his physical results? Have we been so conditioned to not believe anything that comes out of the White House that we don't even trust the doctor who tells us Trump weighs 239 pounds? We played the sound from John King yesterday, (laughs) who really plays it right down the middle. He didn't buy the notion that he was 237 or 239-877-301-8970. So some reporter yesterday obviously asked the question that Joel wanted to know. And here it is, Dr. Johnson explaining why the president may have slurred his words uh, recently. And and he also addresses the critical question of dentures. I think the reason for that was, quite honestly, me being up here right now, I think I need a drink of water. Uh, is, but uh, I think that um, I had given the president some medication, uh, specifically some Sudafed over the days previous, and I think that I had inadvertently kind of dried up his secretions a little bit more than uh, than I intended to, and I think that led to, uh, that precipitated it. Some people have suggested that could be related to dentures. Does the president wear dentures? He, he does not. The president has no partial or dentures of any kind. You know, I'm sorry, but does this guy sound like an apologist as opposed to a doctor reporting, describing, you know, with great enthusiasm how it may have been the Sudafed I gave him? That- yeah, you know, what, remember this thing that Trump does, especially when he's um, nervous, is he goes... 
Yeah, sniffing. Sniffing all the time like he's done cocaine, which I don't for a minute think he's done. I don't think it's anything to do with it. But you you do wonder what that sniffing is about. Pamela says she's never been so disappointed by a clean bill of health. God help me, she says. And um, oh, where's the one? I just missed this one from from Christopher. Hold on. Christopher was saying that he feared that Michelle Obama's vegetable garden was going to be turned into a Mountain Dew distillery. <laughs> well, you know, in all seriousness, you know, let's move. Was that the thing that Obama's thing was called, the Michelle Obama's let's move? Yeah. I mean, from let's move to this crap food thing, uh, it, well. Anyway. And he also points out on a serious note that lots of highly creative and successful people have bipolar disorder. Uh, we talk about it too cavalierly, which we kind of do. No, uh, the issue is not, is it a disqualifier? The issue is, is the public or at least our elected representatives entitled to know not just about whether or not there's early dementia in the president, which theoretically this cognitive test 30 out of 30 score yeah. rules out, but to get a full psychological profile, as Art Kaplan described One before. One other question, Jim? Well, the first one, faith, velvet, red, donut, <laughs> donut. Big Mac. Big Mac. I don't remember. It was face, not faith, but you were close. Yeah. I'm not doing really well. Want another one? Sure. Okay. We won't have it. This is the test that the president took yesterday. It's the actual thing. I I think you could identify the animals in question. We won't ask you that. Okay. Okay, Name as many words as you can. I'll give you 30 seconds to begin with F. F. Well, I can't say the one that comes to mind (laughs) first. (laughs) Falafel, Frankfurter, (laughs) Filet. Well, they all have something Filet in common, fish. don't they? Filet of fish. <laughs> fish. Filet mignon. We got an email from Roger Berkowitz last night, by the way. A friend was listening about whether f- lobsters feel pain. I'll read that to you in a couple of minutes. What does he I say? forgot about thumbs that. Thumbs up or thumbs down? Unequivocally, they do not feel pain. Okay. But he has an idea about how to deal with it. Okay, fish, uh, uh, friends. Friends. Forensics. Forensics. Uh, uh, how many more do I have to okay, do? Okay, it's, it's a half minute up. Flapjacks. What? Pretty they well. were all food except for <laughs> forensics in there. For forensics. How many are you supposed to get? That's right. They'll be doing the autopsy. How many are you, you supposed to get there? <clears throat> uh, it doesn't say how many you're supposed to get. You're still supposed to name, name as many as you can in one minute. Face? Face. That was okay. good. That was one of your previous words. Well, was, the delayed you. recall option. So maybe I'm not doing quite as well as the president <laughs> did, but I'm doing I'm nervous. I'm on the air. I'm okay. Live. Will in Nashua, New Hampshire. What do you think, uh, Will? Yep, I remember George Bush Sr. and the broccoli. Yes. I'm the president. I don't have to eat broccoli, right? Exactly. I remember that. <laughs> That's right. There's a lot, a lot of damage. Everybody trying to get the kids to eat broccoli because it's healthy. And George Bush, in one sentence, undid about years and years of hard work. So, you know, I think the whole thing is just, it's a sort of um, it's an interesting entertainment, I think. You buying the notion that he is as healthy as he appears, and he only weighs two thirty nine, and he did thirty out of thirty on the Montreal cognitive test? You buying all that or no? No, I, I checked the questions. I saw somebody posted. I think it was on Facebook or yeah. something. The questions, and I mean, it was just like a sort of um, okay. This is just like a very very basic thing. It's oh, just it is. Like, you know, it, 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 it's it is a sort of um sentient system there, you know, can he sort of read, can he recognize things, is he alive, you know, is there a sort of, you wave a hand in front of his face, do you get any response from his eyes, it's that sort of thing. Well, it is, ba- it's a real happens. baseline kind of thing, but the baseline, it's used in hundreds of countries, again, not to be a, an in-depth psychological evaluation, but a baseline cognitive test. Okay, well, thanks here's for how the baseline call. it is, you're going to do really well at this okay. one. To what category do these objects belong? Very good. For example, orange and banana. 
fruits, That's right? a fruit. Okay. It's an F word, yeah. Here we go, Jim. Okay, good. Train and boat. <laughs> Velvet. Oh, no, transportation. Okay, transportation. That's right. Go. North and south. Directions. Drum and flute. Music. Exactly. So, wait Those, a second. These are the questions? These are the questions. Oh. Well, I so did pretty it, well it does, Yeah, it does. But I think to say that you can, um, you know, take Face, away. velvet, blue, <laughs> falafel, and... What's the other one? It's face, velvet, church, daisy, and red. Whatever. Okay, okay. let's go to Ken in Medford. Ken in Medford. Hi, Ken. Hi, Ken. Welcome. Good morning to you both. Hi. This doctor has just got to be loaded with fake news. I would not want him for my own doctor, um, hearing the things that he's saying. Um, but, but keep in mind, Ken, uh, again, to be clear, he was not picked by Donald Trump. He was first appointed as a White House physician by W, by George right. W. Bush, and then served under Barack Obama. And he did, so Obama. He's not in yeah, the he did Obama's physicals, yeah, too. Yeah, I know. So go ahead, Ken. Did he kowtow to uh, the other president that's the way a, he did to Trump? That's, that's a, the question. Well, in all fairness, uh, <laughs> George W. And, and is one of the fittest presidents we've probably ever had. Just look at him. of him out cutting the brush at the ranch. And Barack Obama's. That big buckle, big belt buckle. Obviously a bit of an athlete, Cowboy too. boots. But, you know, that's a very good question to see if it was as sycophantic as yesterday appeared to be. That's a, We'll check that out, Ken. But you're not buying either, huh? We do know that Trump uh, does get exercise when he walks from the White House to his helicopter going to Mar-a-Lago. Well, that's something. <laughs> Be kind. Ken, thank you for your uh, You know, call. I think Barack Obama lied about smoking. I don't think he quit smoking when he said he You quit. said that at the time. You thought he went outside, out back, or was smoking. Yeah, and I also thought, you know, the, being the president of the United States, that, that we, no one should smoke. We all know that. That's not the time to quit. You know what I mean? There's a lot of anxiety associated with quitting smoking. I say after you get away from the button and get away from all these words, then you can quit smoking. By the way, we were checking on the thing that Kohler said about the misspelling that uh, Rachel Maddow We're getting some allegedly... emails saying that's true. Well, we haven't been able to find it. We have but, not been able to find it. You know, the one thing that in, in Trump's and the doctor's defense is he did mention yesterday, did he not, that Trump does not drink, which we've known about for a long never time. Never drank. And does not smoke. Doesn't, and by the way, never we smoked. all know, even those of us who are not medical professionals, know that smoking and excessive drinking, obviously his brother he was an alcoholic, uh, uh, is a real serious health hazard. And maybe, maybe the absence of both of those things over uh, 70 years offset to some degree, plus his genes, according to the well, doctor, you know, the, the negative nutrition and all that and lack of exercise. And I know he drinks a lot of Diet Cokes. I've, I've not heard about him drinking coffee. You look at Mitt Romney and his wife, Ann Romney, who has MS, and mm-hmm. which is a very serious disease. Have you ever seen two better-looking people in their old age? Obviously, they were good-looking to begin with. But but uh, Mormons don't drink. They don't smoke. They don't drink coffee. I don't think they do no caffeine, caffeine no, at they don't all. Have, right. so, and they wear that Mormon underwear. Oh, so pfft. I think on top of all those things. Oh, God, you are horrible. <laughs> Well, I, I, that's, that's what I've read. You. I do. That's no, I've actually, read. it's true, but, the but point it's not is, appropriate the point to be is talking about. That, um, you know, those of us who did all those things to excess, you know, we're all sorry now. Okay, and again, the, some are calling it, and I think it's unfair without knowing all the facts, a girther controversy, and we just, we don't know. Let's try Jim, one. Jim, one more quiz. Okay, go ahead. Can you repeat this after me? Sure. The cat always hid under the couch when dogs were in the room. I bet I can do. The cat always hid under the couch. Yes. While, while dogs. When dogs. When dogs were. In. In the. Room. Room. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Fast. Well, I assume that's what Dr. Jackson did with the president, uh, too. Sadly, Maybe he acted times. it out like a charades kind of thing. You know what I mean? 
yeah, uh, we're going to find this Sanjay Gupta thing is the most troubling part of this. And we'll stay on this and see if it develops during the day. And we will uh, let you know. Okay, coming up, imagine learning that you have only minutes or seconds to live. That's what people in Hawaii went through when they got that false missile alert. Was the president too nonchalant by calling the mistake an exercise? Our national security expert, Juliet Kayyem, joins us for that and more. She's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio, Steve Bannon is in high demand, at least on Capitol Hill. Yesterday, during a House Intelligence Committee hearing, Bannon confirmed that he had been subpoenaed by Bob Mueller. Guess what else? Turns out that before the hearing, the White House asked Bannon to remain mum on certain issues. National security expert Juliette Kayyem joins us on that and more. Last November, the people of Maine voted on a ballot initiative to expand Medicaid, but Governor Paul LePage is refusing to implement it unless the legislature can find funding without raising taxes or tapping reserves. We'll talk to the woman who's determined to make this a law of the land, Democrat Sarah Gideon, the Speaker of Maine's House of Representatives. From there, we talked to MIT's Sherry Turkle about our tech addiction, which she is comparing to our obesity epidemic. Then we wrap things up with our concert roundtable. That and more is next on Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH. From a transmitter atop Great Blue Hill, this is WGBH. Live, local talk, Boston Public Radio. He's Jim Browdy. I am Marjorie Egan. You are listening to hour number two of Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Hello again, Jim. Okay, let me just say one thing to you. Mm -hmm. Face, (laughs) velvet, blue. No blue, Jim. Cheeseburger. No cheeseburger. Uh, car. <laughs> yeah, Jim just took the uh, the Montreal cognitive, cognitive test, test and it, with do? mixed results. Well, apparently not as well as I might have. So within a span of a few <laughs> days. If you pay me enough, I'll say you did. <laughs> within a span of a few days, Hawaii and Japan went into full-blown panic mode when they were warned of incoming missiles. Even though the alerts turned out to be human error, they've sobered us up to how plausible nuclear war now seems between President Trump's tweets and Kim Jong-un's saber-rattling. Join us for a take on this, the latest on the Russia investigation, and Moore's national security expert, Juliet Kayyem. Juliet, as you know, is CEO of Zemcar, a contributor to CNN and WGBH, <coughs> and on the faculty at the Kennedy School. Hello, Juliet. Nice to hear from you, or nice to be here, nice actually. I was going to call in. I was going to be wimpy with well, this. Yeah, it hasn't I really know. turned out to be much. Thank goodness. So much better to see you both. So just this morning, Arizona Republican Jeff Flake went after President Trump's attacks on the press during a speech on the Senate floor. Floor. Let's hear a little bit of, of Flake. He's talking about Trump calling the press the enemy of the people. It is a testament to the condition of our democracy that our own president uses words infamously spoken by Joseph Stalin to describe his enemies. It bears noting that so fraught with malice was the phrase enemy of the people that even Nikita Khrushchev forbade its use telling the Soviet Communist Party that the phrase had been introduced by Stalin for the purpose of, quote, 
annihilating such individuals, unquote, who disagreed with the supreme leader. You know, I always get a little funny when people start comparing anybody so to Joseph I. Stalin, who that. killed millions and millions, so and I. or Hitler, for that matter, who killed millions and millions. But um, what do you make of Flake? I mean, obviously... Uh, Flake is a very complicated senator. He is, you know, forceful in trying to set a moral tone for the Republican Party. I think a lot of other Republicans who may have voted for Trump with, you know, holding their nose are appreciative that there are people in the party doing what he's doing. But, of course, he's not like, you know, he's not part of the resistance. He still votes for the tax bill. He's still you know, strong on immigration stuff. So he's complicated. Maybe we need more complicated people in politics, ones that sort of don't fit, uh, you know, any particular lane. Um, I'm not as um, taken aback by the Stalin reference. I mean, obviously, uh, uh, only because he was careful to say these were the tactics of Stalin. Yep. And and the truth is they are. And I think it's important that people understand the undergridding or the sort of motivation for the fake, the attack um, of on face, fake news, in quotes. It is essentially to say that criticism of Trump is inaccurate and praise of Trump is inevitably accurate. And that's just a world in which, one, we're not there, so that's good, but that's a world that he clearly wants to create and that a lot of his supporters, when we look at it, you know, sort of wonder how are they still behind him so much uh, uh uh, create and and you even think about like the sort of White House moment with the um you know uh, what he said about Haitia and Africa, you know that we're in day seven or however many days that were which we're still debating what word was used and whether a cabinet secretary and two senators can actually claim amnesia as a as a as under oath one of them um uh you know is is the tactic of the of at least the trump white house and so i'm pretty appreciative of of someone from his side of the ledger saying look we can debate policies reasonable people disagree um you know but but two plus two still equals four and and trump a, a lot of his tactics are to make us believe two plus two equals five right you know it also is on the press front uh, that we have no idea if these so called fake news awards, which we're all joking yeah. about are going to happen later today that's they promised when he canceled them he the president but it, to do that. And then have us, like mad dogs, chase after this, which right. I hope we won't, when there's a government shutdown is and two Dr. days yeah. away. The dreamer Hundreds thing of of is at great yeah. risk. But, you know, you mentioned uh, the whole – that meeting in the White House yeah. in the Oval Office. Uh, the Homeland Security person, who I assume is who you're speaking Nielsen, about, yeah. was in that Nielsen. meeting. Here is – if you didn't hear this – I've rarely heard this particular senator like this. This is Jersey Senator Cory Booker. He has this impassioned response to Homeland Security uh, Secretary uh, Kirsten Nielsen. Her claim that she didn't remember what the president said in the now infamous uh, meeting in the Oval Office. Here's a little bit of Booker. Your silence and your amnesia is complicity. I hurt. When Dick Durbin called me, I had tears of rage when I heard about this experience in that meeting. And for you not to feel that hurt and that pain... And to dismiss some of the questions of my colleagues, saying I've already answered that line of questions when tens of millions of Americans are hurting right now because of what they're worried about what happened in the White House. 
That's unacceptable to me. And that was in response. I'm sorry. Yeah, go yeah ahead. I was in response. I'll quote what she had to say before this, because other senators had asked her about what was said in that meeting. Quote, I have been very patient with this line of questioning. I have nothing further to say about a meeting that happened over a week ago. I'd like to move forward and discuss ways in which we can protect our country. That was, Those were the words of uh, Homeland Security Secretary uh, Kirsten uh, yes, Nielsen. And I get why that enraged Booker uh-huh. because she was basically saying these people don't matter. They don't count. Yeah. For, and also forget the, it. the the meeting where the these words were weren't spoken or were clearly spoken, you know, there might be variations of the theme that was used, was about a fundamental safety and security issue, which is a comprehensive immigration reform or immigra- uh, immigrants, yeah. our border, border walls, DACA, um, and whether we could come to some sort of resolution before this shutdown on Friday. So she's trying to say, well, can't we talk about real stuff? What, 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 she, she, you know what? What everyone else knows is that is the real stuff. Yeah. They walked in with a deal. They walked in. With the, the, a bipartisan group of senators walked in with a deal. The president saying, "You give me a deal, I'll sign it." He, as we've now learned, had been, you know, told by Steve Miller and John Kelly, "Don't, don't go down this path," and starts using language that would not come out of your mouth alone in a closet. I mean, that's the thing about other human beings. Um, you know, you know. Uh, you, hopefully, it wouldn't. You worked for Homeland Security, Juliet Kayam, and I'm, I'm wondering whether part of the deal is. If you are the Homeland Security chief, like she is, yeah. that you you got to cover. I mean, are you supposed? Is part of the deal you got to lie? Yeah, for the, I mean, or if I you're think, Secretary of the Treasury, or, or yeah, if you're the it's, chief it's of absolutely staff, absolutely is. Or, it's these people, this group of people. Um, there's well, I actually think that gives them too much credit. I think that there's a group of people who are true believers. I've been I've been saying this for a while. John Kelly is neither savior, you know, nor hostage. This is who John Kelly he's is. He's a hardliner yeah. on immigration. He's a hardliner. So uh, Secretary Nielsen was his staffer. She's there's although no... he lied about the uh, David Johnson situation. Yeah, when he went no, out right. no, I mean, in other words, but that's that's a lie consistent with what Trump would want to hear. Um, and uh, Secretary Nielsen, who's no one believes she was qualified for the job. I kept quiet on it. What's the point of just, but I mean, she was a staffer for Secretary Kelly. She was, you know, um, she is just there to do what Kelly wants her to do in that position. What she, you know, what, what happened though, she's in the room. She then goes on TV, says he doesn't say it. And someone forgot to tell her she's under oath two days later or a day later. And that becomes, you know, what, why, why this, uh, this conflict came up. And I mean, you know, I can't even, as I said, no, no good, kind human being talks about people from countries like that in that way. I mean, certainly not a president of the United States, let alone publicly, let alone before people that you know are going to walk out the door and say this happened. So, you know, he, I, you know, he may have wanted this to come out that this actually. You know, well, by the way, we should point out to people that say that that that, that she, he didn't say this that he the White House yeah, didn't please. deny it. They only please. started backtracking after when they the, realized you know the, what hit the fan, the, yeah. and he played the lines out for other Republicans who thought it was that he talked to on the phone. Right. This and the so president. then people who had, you know, that's the problem with being a Trump defender is what are you defending? Because their storyline changes so often, and this is where, you know, coming back to the fake news. You know, one of the things that the senator was talking about when he's talking about fake news was obviously. You know what this means to other countries and other, you know, less vibrant democracies than ours. I mean, ours, I'd still believe ours is going to survive. You know, the the fracturing and the tension on the on the apparatus, I think, will survive the the beating it sometimes takes with this administration. But 
you know, other countries don't have as strong or resilient democratic systems and, and obviously uh, autocrats and totalitarians take advantage of it. But also just think of our allies. Um, you know, this is a, the president of the United States. He gives a different reason, but by most accounts, cannot visit England. I mean, I think that that's there's no other takeaway. He's tried to go it three like the times. Real estate deal I know, that was please, made on please. The that was made by it was Bush. Was made by Bush, right? Not Obama. I mean, you know, he's supposedly tried. Obama it, it was involved in the relocation and yes, the building of the new not, one. Exactly, but not on the original right. sale, because which is has, what Trump I mean, let me just put this in perspective. Why we don't believe that? Sorry, he has accepted an invitation three times. So he he clearly wants to put an imprint in Britain, and then what they are monitoring is you come here. The mayor of London, who you have attacked verbally um, and on Twitter after terrorist attacks, um, will make – well, let's just say he'll make his streets available for those protesters, right? You know, I mean, he is not – you know, he, it's going to be like the Patriots parade. We'll, we'll, close the, we'll close the streets. And so – So you don't um, think he's going to go to Prince Harry's wedding? No, no. You know, can we stay on what we were talking about for a second and state the obvious – that while we are all debating and our elected representatives are all enraged or not enraged or lying or not lying about what the president said or didn't said in terms of his language, which is entirely consistent with what we've heard before. So yeah. it's not like it's taking us in a totally new direction. There are 800,000 people yeah. who are living and their loved Don't ones know. living in fear, the dreamers. And, you know, this story, which we have not talked about here at oh, all, God. this guy, Jorge Gar- Garcia, if you didn't follow this thing out of Detroit, 39 years old. He has lived in this country for 30 years since he was 10 years old, brought here from Mexico. Two kids are U.S. citizens. His wife is a U.S. citizen. And he is deported. Yeah. And he's deported because he was too old to be covered by they DACA. And we got an email the other day saying, well, he was too old. Why are you even bringing it up? Well, the answer is because a lot of people were hoping that when DACA was reauthorized, it would be redefined in such a way that a man like Garcia, who raised the family here, by the way, never even got a traffic ticket or a parking yeah. ticket in 30 years and paid his taxes, that people like Garcia would not be ripped out of their family and sent back no, to Mexico. Right. And so look, while we fixate, we're part of the problem. While we fixate on you know the S storm over the S word and all that sort right. of stuff, this there is are eight hundred thousand people and their families who are living in understandable and, fear. And the insurances that the Trump administration makes that, as as Secretary Nielsen did, that you know even if DACA doesn't get authorized, you know this won't be a priority is. Is undermined the, by the reality of their of their enforcement priorities the last year. Which well, they're is also going to the Supreme like Court to get the, yeah. uh, the oh, that's exactly California right. Too. That's a great point. Overturned. Yeah. Right. If you wanted the problem to go away, let the litigation slow roll exactly. for a couple years. DACA is you know the DACA changes that Trump made are are now um, stayed by a, a, a court in California. If you actually were concerned, you would let it slow roll. But instead, they say one thing, but their yeah. actions, including prioritizing not or not or, or, or you know the the people uh, you know uh, they're not officially dreamers but uh, you know people who have been here a long time and this is why I, I mean I think I personally think our immigration services are run by people that have no political are not being controlled by polit- any political apparatus I mean these guys who the people the guy who's running ice right now he's the one who's now saying that they all they're thinking of criminal um, uh, liability for mayors of sanctuary cities. I mean, th- these are people who, you know, don't don't 
you know, don't get federalism, but don't get sort of, you know, uh, democracy. You know, you arrest someone who disagrees with the policy, please. Can you answer? <laughs> can we play a lawyer now for a second? Yeah. We don't have to play it because you are a lawyer. Steve Bannon testifies in front of the House Intelligence yeah. Committee and claims executive privilege. And I don't even understand why some of the things that he refused to talk about, including conversations after he left the White House, are covered by executive privilege. But put that aside. That's water under the bridge. Now they're subpoenaing him because they're angry and apparently bipartisan anger, maybe. Yeah. But what I've read this morning is now that he's been subpoenaed by Mueller, the special counsel, yeah. and that he they've made an agreement so he doesn't have to testify in front of a grand jury. It'd be like a pro, it'd be an interview. A direct interview, sort of like, uh, I guess, when Bill Clinton agreed right. uh, uh, to be interviewed by Ken Starr, so enough to go in front of a grand jury. Why is he not? My understanding is he can't claim executive privilege there. Is that because Mueller's part of the executive branch? So why can't? Why is why because he's, he's not facing any? Uh, I mean, this is just an interview. Yeah. So as long as he doesn't lie to the FBI. You know, what what are you protecting? What privilege is he going to protect? So he has to answer every question from Mueller. And also because because unlike the intelligence committees, Mueller knows what executive privilege is. It does not cover um, the transition. It does not cover uh, illegal behavior. It does not cover post-transition. I think, I mean, this is where, you know, Mueller is sort of 20 paces ahead of us, even people like me who follow it out of interest. You know, he's, so he... Um, he subpoenas Bannon. Bannon's team clearly leaks that. Some deal is done in the interim to now allow just an interview. So what so that's so that's interesting. It's also interesting because at the same time, Mueller's team is interviewing Hope Hicks and uh, She's Lou, the young communications yeah. director who's been with Trump maybe yeah. the longest the of longest. any non-family member. And she was the, apparently the access point for all information to, to Trump. She's the one who presses his clothing when he's wearing it. Yeah, Is that and not also right? the one who the I guess he doesn't thing. do email. Yeah. That's yeah. a very clever okay. little device, yeah. I don't think I want to know yeah, about so that. Co- and probably. like Corey Lewandowski and all these others that might get interviewed by Mueller. So so Mueller's uh, move with Bannon, which he might, which, you know, maybe he's a sophisticated, he may have known that Bannon would have leaked, um, actually ends up sort of setting the stage for these other interviews of people still in the White House, which is if Bannon is willing to and, you know, cut a deal, which is what he clearly did. And you have to wonder what's that deal about. Um, it's got to be beneficial to or it's got to be. Well, let's just say it's beneficial to Bannon and not to the White House. Um, if you're Hope Hicks and you're 27 years old or or even better, if you're Hope Hicks parents, high parents, and you are giving advice to your daughter, uh, look at the trajectory of her life um, and look who ended up in jail during Watergate. And I mean, you know, this is the kind of thing. You know, Nixon does not end up in jail, right? No, who ends up level, in jail? Low the 30 people, people that yeah. lied for him thinking that that this thing would not fold. Yeah. I'm I mean, it was to, like a couple dozen ended up in jail. We're talking to Juliet Kaim. A lot of them got religion in jail, yeah. so there was a plus. So let's talk about this this horrible situation over in Hawaii. Yeah. Whereas we all know, 40 minutes elapsed between the time Hawaiians were told that the missile is coming till the time that they said, no, it's not. Yeah. Um, what's your uh, takeaway on that? So, Homeland yeah. Security? Yeah. So um, um, there are mistakes. This was a really bad one. Um, mistakes are forgivable and we have to learn about how, um, uh, you know, how this happened, the upgrading of the network. I'll never condemn a state emergency management agency from testing systems, from upgrading systems. You want that all to happen. The, the sort of unimaginable, unforgivable part is that 38 minutes that you talk about. Fortunately, um, you know, recognizing that 
that a big mistake had occurred, even though Hawaii Emergency Management Agency personnel knew that the mistake occurred because they have phones. They got the alerts themselves. They, for a variety of reasons that are not entirely clear, a variety of explanations that none of them make sense to me, it took a long time for them to retract that. 38 minutes, Yeah, 38 minutes. So in the meanwhile, thankfully, you know, a combination of, you know, Congresswoman, you know, Tulsi Gabbard, the the, um, uh, NORAD uh, and Pacific Command were coming out with messaging saying that, you know, we would be the ones to know if missiles were coming. They're not coming. They're not coming. You know, Gabbard was criticized, Congresswoman Gabbard, by a lot of people. Because yeah. she wasn't in, in the, the official of line of yeah. command, which I mean, she's one of the people who save people from psychological yeah, devastation. I think, I think that's right. I mean, you you know, you don't know like who's following her is probably more us than right. than the people. Um, but um, it's not it's not behavior that you that's not behavior that you want to say. Let's support that kind no, of behavior. You want you want yeah. um, a chain of command. And so you have to just you know, so so there's two things you know one is obviously re- uh, having Hawaii regain confident confidence in their state emergency management system not just for missiles coming down but of course for tsunamis and earthquakes and other things that Hawaii could suffer you have to have people have confidence in the system when a governor says we're closing the streets uh, stay inside um, run for the hills whatever it is you're going to do depending on what the harm is you want the you want people to listen and our the biggest problem in safety and security planning is people don't listen, right? It's not that people listen too much. Uh, The other piece is something that, you know, in our political times, I was very clear when I was on air and and writing on Saturday and Sunday was, you know, not everything is about Donald Trump, right? This, you know, people are, you know, yes, there's a heightened (laughs) alert system and, you know, there's a heightened, you know, sense of unease with North Korea because of this, the fact that people thought it was plausible, you know, clearly because of the heightened thing. But this was just a state mistake and and let's have the state fix it. Where I think um, the White House is getting off the hook sort of not, and, uh, and unimaginably so in my head, is what has come out since then is when a state has its own crisis, there is a federal overlay over it, especially if it's real. How would the White House respond? What's their incident command system? Who's notified of what? You know, And what we've learned is it was very um, uh, uh, disorganized in those minutes when they were figuring stuff out, and that the White House hasn't done the basic what we call principle-level exercises, all that kind of stuff, to sort of ensure that the system is... Um, that they that people know what they're doing. The fact that they've been there a year and have not done what we call a principal levels exercise. Let's say there's a terrorism attack in New York. What's going to happen on the federal side? Um, it's just that to me is just sort of that means no one really cares, right? And it also going back to our earlier point, it means that the sec- that the Department of Homeland Security is solely about immigration now rather than mm-hmm. crisis management. And as we know from Katrina. You know, you can't just focus on one thing. You got to I mean, in other words, before Katrina, we were only focused on terrorism. You have to look at the totality of things that can face this nation and and figure out what you're going to do. So I do think there is a, a, a federal piece to this. But, it, you know, this is not a you know, this is more of a governance thing rather than a political thing. You know, uh, one of the, this is sort of how I feel to a lesser degree than I was saying before about the, the dreamer non-debate while we're focused on what the president said or didn't say. And the human cost. For th- imagine yourself for thirty-eight minutes, yeah. thinking you're going to die, and you read the stories oh my God. of them. And I know it was an honest mistake, so yeah. I'm, I understand. No, I know. There's always but, so but, much. You know, you read of mothers who are calling their grown children in the mainland, the United States, saying, I love you. Yeah. You read of other mothers or fathers sticking their little kids in storm drains to protect them. And, 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 and 
there haven't been nearly enough stories. Like, remember War of the Worlds? Well, I didn't yeah. remember. I wasn't alive. But when Orson Welles did War of the yeah. Worlds, which yeah. was this phony thing about a, people right. from Mars invading, landing people had heart attacks and, and, and died. One, I haven't read those kind of stories. And don't you assume, if you think you have 38 minutes to die, that there was some, I don't know, Wife who said, hey, honey, I got to tell you, I did it with a mailman. Our kid is the mailman. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Maybe. Don't you, don't you think were, I think. Don't you think our son, I know yeah. he looks a lot like the I mean, mail carrier. Say, There's a reason right, for remember, it. Imagine the hot takes if this had happened in Brooklyn. Like everyone would have a story. Oh, there'd be a love story. There'd be a divorce story. But there's story. not nearly as much no. of that as you they think. They were back surfing. I mean, no, I'm not, I'm not minimizing the trauma. What I would say is everyone who's pissed off about this, rightfully so, the anger, the fear, the everything and people, you know, steer it towards something productive, which is if I had gotten that alert and forget that it's missiles, so maybe it's, um, you know, something else coming or whatever. If I had gotten that alert, what are the things I wish I had done to just basically, you know, be slightly more prepared than you know, I would be? And, you know, and that gets back to my preparedness mission, which I've said a million times and leaves and leaves Marjorie aghast. Um, the thing about uh, Nielsen that you said was a staffer and is ill-prepared to be heading up Homeland Security. You know, we had Katrina and there was a disaster and yeah. Brownie was, was... Michael Brown. Was he was yeah. Michael head, Brown? I think it was yeah, Michael Brown. Brownie doing was, a heck of a job. He was the head of Homeland Security then and then people thought he was wildly incompetent. Didn't he run horse shows or something? Yeah, he, he was the uh, yeah. executive director of the uh, but I guess International Equestrian. It, it, it does, it, do we h- hope that she has staff people around her who yeah. know what I they're mean, doing? I mean, I think so they had a FEMA. You but, you know, FEMA's taking a hit because of Puerto Rico, um, obviously. So um, I don't quite get how you don't do this exercise because this is really in the wheelhouse of what the White House is interested in, right? Which is, you know, terrorism and 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 North Korea. Um, but the department has been aligned around immigration uh, for 100 percent right now. It is about enforcement. It is about, um, uh, you know, the, all the stuff that we're, we're talking about now. So, um, you know, they haven't done the sort of basic precautions and stuff. You know, it's filled with a lot of really scary people right now. And I think Secretary Nielsen is is one of them in the sense that, you know, maybe we you know, I think some people get gendered about it. Well, she's a woman and therefore how could she be so harsh or whatever? I mean, this is there's harsh women and there's harsh men and there's you know, not harsh women and not harsh men. Now, whenever like, I whenever I see Stephen Miller, I'm full of confidence. And... Yeah. Well also I think <laughs> the twenty four year old who's now the number two person at oh, the drug, drug agency, yeah. he's the one who's giving advice to all his colleagues. <laughs> well this is going to be if you think it's bad now wait till year three because i think what's going to happen as i'm starting to hear this from friends in dc is that this first wave that has come out um you know if you worked for obama for a year boards would be rushing to you you'd be i mean you know those guys that got out those big white house guys with obama they're on the board of airbnb and uber and you know and mcdonald's and whatever you know, there's only so much longer you're not tainted. And and I think what people – so therefore going in is not – you know, if you think there's a payday on the other side, think again. Um, because I think for a lot of people who, who, who went in and thought, well, this is just, you know, I want to help government – It's just it's too much. You get too tinged by the kind of stuff that we saw, uh, you know, about the immigration debate, that that kind of language, that kind of view of the world, that kind of view of people. And, you know, and and that comes from the top. But I think when the White House therefore get out of jail, they should be given a second (laughs) chance. That's that's my view. If they do their time. 
Just, we should open okay. up like a like we, that would be good. A we referral. just a dedicate no yeah. like dedicated be law and communications like a dedicated <laughs> Zemcar would give them rides. Uh, we give their kids Ooh, rides because if they're in, in jail, Fine, you know. Thank you. That's who Zemcar That's good. serves. Good to see you, Juliet. Thank Juliette you, you guys. Thank you very much. I'll get my voice Kayyem. back next week. Our national security expert Juliet Kayam joins us every week. She's the CEO of the aforementioned Zemcar, a contributor to CNN and WGBH, and on the faculty at the Kennedy School. Thank you so much, Juliet. Uh, coming up. We're going to talk with Sherry Turkle. She's the founder and director of the MIT Initiative on Technology and Self. And we're going to talk to her about our addiction to texting, our addiction to our cell phones, and how texting are interfering with something very important. That would be romance. Sherry Turkle's up next on WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And there's a New Yorker cartoon where a toddler is moving her hands over a window and the mother explains to her friend she thinks it's a touch screen. <laughs> that behavior is exactly what two major Apple investors are urging Apple to work on curbing tech addiction amongst kids. Joining us for a take on kids' relationship to technology and what it would take to make it a healthy one is Sherry Turkle. Sherry's the founder and director of the MIT Initiative on Technology and Self and a professor of the Social Studies of Science and Technology. Her latest book is the New York Times bestseller, Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk in a Digital Age. Sherry, it's great to see you again. Lovely to be here. Great to see you, too. Well, we're going to start with addiction, but believe me, I want to talk about robots and texting rules and don'ts and do's and don'ts and culture and all this kind of stuff, especially in romances. But let's start with the addiction thing. So um, are we addicted? Are our children in peril here? Well, I don't like the word addicted. Okay. I don't. There are certainly things about how we behave with our phones that make the phones like a slot machine in this particular way. That the thing that keeps you most at a slot machine is this thing called intermittent variable reward, which is that you don't know when you're going to hit, you know, the jackpot. It comes on you in no pattern, but the good thing will come. And it's that fact that it's unpredictable, it's going to happen, it could be the next time that keeps you in your seat. And the phone and social media sort of has been designed with that in mind so that Facebook will give you likes from your friends and give you that information about how much you're liked in that sort of intermittent, variable way smushed up with other things about the news, the weather, the the state of the world. You know what I call that, Sherry? Addiction. Now, the, you know, <laughs> well, Sherry Turkle, you know what I read? When, in anticipation of you coming, I was reading a, a bunch of pieces, Marjorie, was yeah. through in which you're quoted, and all of them are quoting the same statistic, yeah. that the average, 80% of Americans right. roughly own smartphones, and uh, of those 80%, the average, this is unbelievable, yeah. the number of touches a day is 26 Hundred yes. per uh, uh, person, and by the way, I know that I am clearly in the over uh, in that category. Yeah. Twenty six hundred thing. Your phone is sitting on the table right in front of you. Why? I have no. Well, it shouldn't be for all. For it, it shouldn't be, and I'll tell you why it shouldn't be. Why shouldn't it be? Because the mere presence of a phone, even a phone turned down and turned off, which this one isn't, because I have text on it, um, 
will change the quality of a conversation. I couldn't agree more. It will make it more trivial, and the people in the room where the phone is will somehow feel less of an empathic connection with each other. So I, I went against my own research by, in the rush of coming in here, not putting the phone away. So what so, do you think of people that have just, I, all I, their conversations with their phone in front of them? Bad. Have meals, take you out, have a company get-together with their phone in front of them. <clears throat> what are you talking to me for? <laughs> I, I, in what? I don't think I've seen you have a meal in, what, five years? Or the phone is, it's without hard. your phone right in front of you? No, you're, you're... And by the way, for those who... Last time Sherry was on with me, they say, I've been doing television at GBH for, I don't know, three years, four years, five years, and 20 years before that, give or take, at NECN. Uh-huh. My phone has never oh, rung on the show in all the years. Sherry Turkle is on, reclaiming conversation, and we're having a conversation. You probably don't remember this. And what happens? Phone My rings. phone rings in the middle of the interview. So it's one of those things where, you know, I am this at, well, you don't like the word. I am the addict, not the child addict, but the right. adult addict that so many people are, are talking about. And I know that I read a ton of what you've written. Yeah. I know that you're right, but I can't free myself. But here's why I don't like the word addiction. Why? Because if you're a methamphetamine addict, there's only one thing for you to do. Which is stop, re- stop nothing, mm-hmm. zero mm-hmm. Re- rehab, detox. If in your situation with your phone, we can change, and I believe that it's time for phone designers to step up and for there to be, as they're starting to be, as I think part of this conversation we're having now is about a new movement for there to be pressure on phone designers to design the phones in such a way that they'll hook us less. The phone is not the problem. It's how we're using the phone and what's on the phone and the way we're designing the phone. And the conventional, when these huge investors, the two investors, neither of whose names I can think of, have been pressuring Apple in particular to do the work that you're talking about, Sherry Turkle, the commentators say the reason Apple is perfect for this, because of all of the the Silicon Valley companies, the one that is least dependent upon you looking and using your phone 24-7 is Apple. Do you buy that thesis? Yes, I do. So I, that so so what do they do? Give them. I'm sure you've given them advice, but if you haven't, give our audience. What should Apple be doing if they really care about this? Well, Apple needs me to buy the to buy. I'm actually holding an iPhone. Apple needs me to buy this phone on a regular basis, and they'd also like me to be part of the Apple ecosystem, so that I'm buying my movies and my. A lot of music, and and I am, and keeping it within the Apple ecosystem. They don't need me to have this phone applied directly. She has it on her forehead, (laughs) as we're speaking. Applying it directly, you know, applying it directly to my eyes and my brain all the time, as does in the in in the in the um, in the kind of uh, business model: Facebook, all eyes on; uh, Google, all eyes on. So they can begin. As, a, as as kind of a model, but I think that I think that Facebook and Google and other places will also start to move in a more responsible direction, to say how can we live in a more sensible way with this technology that nobody is suggesting we get rid of, and that's the trouble with the addiction model. It takes the pressure off. Oh, you're right. You're the right. Designers, it's like saying, oh, let's do a better methamphetamine. You know, let's do a better methamphetamine. So I say no. We have our phones. They've improved our lives in many ways. Let's make them 
a better technology. So, so it wouldn't be ridiculous for me. To, I wouldn't be the sort of like the walk of shame that I have some notes. <laughs> that I have some notes. <laughs> That's right. You had your notes. That's a very good excuse. I have some notes for our meeting. I have some very clever things I was planning to (laughs) say. That's right. You know, I too late now. Right. You know, but but in fact, it's true that the way things are now, if you know, the research shows, and and my own research shows that if you have that phone on the table, even turned down and turned off you were going to diminish the conversation. We're talking with Sherry Turco. Her latest book is Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk (laughs) in a Digital Age. There was another fascinating piece that you were quoted all over the place, and it was in The Atlantic. It was about how it became normal to ignore texts and emails. And I thought this was fascinating because it spoke about how people experience anxiety and depression over how fast their texts are answered or not answered, particularly in a romance where people will have their friends analyzing not only how fast the text came from this, you know, hope for boyfriend or girlfriend, but the, the quality of the text and what the person says in the text and stuff. So texts are taking over our lives. Oh, absolutely. Analyzing, analyzing the, the study, of, of when to text, how to text, was it the right text? I call it an army. In my, in, in, in my book, I, I have a chapter called An Army of Cyrano's, where people, <laughs> <laughs> where people bring in, you know, people bring in help. You know, it, doing it yourself is, 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 is too hard. That's right. You really want, you really want to bring in your, 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 your posse to men as well as women. To um, to to get particularly that first two weeks of of texts correct, and to be able to analyze back, you know what is being said to in you the new romance. in the new romance yes. in the new romance because every every gesture you know is it you know the timing you know it it, it, it is 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 very delicate. I think you I know, read somewhere that you have yeah. chosen. I think I read this yeah. that you, Sherry Turkle, have chosen email over texting. You're not a big text. Was that? A- I'm not a big texter. I find that the pressures of texting are too. I I I'm, I'm the immediacy I'm, thing of it, or what do you mean? Well, I I I'm not a I'm a sort of more deliberate person. I mean, I I don't like the I don't like the pressure. Uh, I'm usually doing something. I'm usually writing. I'm, a, I'm basically I'm a writer, or I'm teaching, or I'm with a friend, or I'm I need a lot of time alone to think. Yeah. So those are my three modes. I'm with a friend. I'm with my daughter. I'm writing, or I'm teaching. I sort of go between those three. So this is too invasive. It's too invasive. I don't. Yeah. I don't want to be. Boom. You yeah. Know, I don't, don't want to be like jumping. You know, on on call. I don't. I I don't like that feeling of being on call. I find mm. that unpleasant. You know. So I need to be able to segregate. Uh, but that's just me. You know, um, there is a, and I think my colleague is going to have to get me the right title uh-huh. of this. Um, it's either Cat Power, or The Girl with Cats, that New Yorker piece that's oh, caused yeah. such yeah. an uproar. Cat, Cat person, person. Yeah. thank you very much. Yeah. Cat person, and <clears throat> that was fascinating because it talks about this relationship. Uh, that that existed mostly in text messages yes. for weeks and weeks and weeks before this couple actually got together, and then did, it did not go well when they when they got together. But <clears throat> that the fact that people do have these extended right. text relationships, not even phone calls, right, in a romance seems so odd because you can't hear the inflection in someone's voice. You can't. 
laugh and you know what I mean? Well, I think we've we've allowed ourselves to get into online. And I mean, for, for many people, it's become the preferred mode. I mean, not just in romance where it can end badly, but but in our relationships, preferring to not see people face to face on the grounds, as so many people tell me, that you never have boring bits. What people are afraid of in relationships, what they shun, is is the sort of dead time in a relationship. And you they feel that they can avoid that if they're doing everything by text, where when something gets boring, they're off to something else, and they can make the whole relationship sort of always have something happening in it. Whereas human conversation, and I think that's why radio was so interesting, because you 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 develop a, you know there are moments of silence, and you learn to sort of enjoy them as human moments of silence. Hold on for one second. Is dead time when you're just sitting in the car not talking, or what is dead time in a relationship? Well, in a relation, in a good relationship, uh-huh. dead time is when you're just it's a live time. In the sense that you're each thinking about what just happened and what will happen next. You're having an experience. And the fact that so many people are talking to me about texting as a way to not have dead time. Wow. Means that people, and they call it boring bits, shows that people, the internet I think has taken, has diminished our capacity to appreciate the, the back and forth of human connection. Can I also, I'm going to plead yeah. guilty to one other thing. I'll probably four more what things else? before you're out here. <laughs> no, what else do you got? When you two are talking, <laughs> I am Mr. Invasive when it comes to this. Marjorie and I don't talk on the phone much in between when we leave at yeah. 2 and we, we start again. Well, we see each other yeah. early in the morning, but starting at, uh, you know, at 11 when our show starts, I text her nonstop, and before she accuses me, I will plead guilty. If she doesn't respond to my text literally in a nanosecond, I'll send her some obnoxious follow-up text like, hello. hello. Exa- with so- one question mark, and then we have hello in capital letters with two question marks. And there's and no then, other you know, hysterical. There's no other. The reason I bring that up is because the point you made, there's no other mode of communication I can think of. If I called her on the phone and left a voicemail, I wouldn't be as aggravated if it took an hour. Right. If I, uh, 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 you know, any other, even an email, same sort of thing, the place where you spend some of your communicative time. But texting, it, the invasive nature of it and the expectation level you of love people that. like me. No, I hate, I know that it is wrong. Because, by the way, when <laughs> it's done to me, I cannot tell you how resentful I am right. that somebody didn't even give me 90 seconds to respond right. to this thing. But the invasive nature of the thing is really horrible. The other thing is people consciously do it. And I'm partly going to this because they don't want to deal with real human beings. They want to deal with them in this cyber sort of, of world. So it's not just the the... The, the side effect, it's the intended effect. Is that not a fair statement that is of most fair. of us who are texters? That are, that, that's fair. But it, the question is, what is that then doing to to us? I mean, I think that's the question I try to ask in What is in it my doing work. to us? What is it doing to us? What is it doing it's to us? It's making us intolerant of the kinds of conversation in which yeah. sort of – in which things develop, in which – you know, I mean, now there's you, a give and take kind of thing. Give, there's a give and take, <laughs> and where things I I, I want to just stand up for this, where things get boring, because people are thinking, mm-hmm. where things are hard. I mean, I, I I'm a teacher, and I see over time my students 
and see when stuff is actually not easy. And, and yeah. actually, the kinds of questions we have before us now, uh, things are quite difficult <coughs> and... Uh, are, you know, it's not a short answer quiz. Well, so can we talk? Can we talk yeah. more about the end of human relationships for me? Which is not your <laughs> title, but that's the title of another chapter. You were you've written this. Uh, Marjorie and I were in full yeah. swoon over this piece in the Washington Post you wrote uh-huh. about these so-called sociable robots. Yeah. that are huge. Jibo is the name of the one, and your colleague actually is the inventor of yes, Jibo. Very, is that right? A very close colleague. Can you, for those who don't know the term, explain to people who don't have young kids particularly what are these sociable robots? What are they in? Tended to do, and what's the danger as you see at Sherry Turgle? Well, a sociable robot uh, or a sociable um, uh, computer computational agent mm-hmm. is um, is a kind of artificial intelligence. Call it artificial intimacy, another AI um, that doesn't just kind of hook you in by being smart. It hooks you in by being sociable. So um, it's opening ploy to you is, hi, how are you? It's been so long since I saw you last. Not, hello, do you want to play chess? Or, you know, how about checkers? Or came up with a great trivia, trivial pursuit thing I wish to, to trick you at. Um, hi, uh, how are you? Uh, been a long, been, been a couple of days since we spoke. I have some games and love to chat. And how are you feeling? And how is it going with your daughter or your mom i heard your mom was ill you know it it it, it scoured the internet for stuff about you it wants it it comes on as your friend so what's wrong with that well (laughs) because it says that it has feelings about you missed you loves you um missed you oh you know it's a machine jim (laughs) (laughs) no the point is scarlett johansson was a machine i know that's right well the Scarlett Johansson thing is actually quite is a very good way to think about it. That's the movie. What was Be- it called? Her. 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 Yeah. Because because it's a kind of that's a kind of perfect idea of what it is. That was a, she was a machine that um, that basically said that it had all of the emotional feelings towards poor Joaquin Phoenix uh, that made him fall in love with her, and as well he should have, because. She loved, you know, she basically said that she loved him. Right. And he, she was the best, most loving creature in his life. And the trouble is, is that these machines are saying they have feelings toward you that a machine that has not known death, loss, fear, panic, the arc of a life doesn't have any and cannot have any of these feelings and your concern that it, is that a kid can't doesn't often doesn't yeah, know absolutely that they're I've not done, a real live companion absolutely i've done these experiments when it when it when you i the, the research team i was working with we came up with this formulation you know can a broken machine break a child because when one of these machines would like go awry a little bit the children would become bereft that, you mean that they're being rejected? That or they're being some... rejected, that they're being... Yikes. I, I, and these machines did, of course, go awry. And also, all that you're being offered, I mean, really on, on the deepest level, is that all that you're being offered is pretend empathy. And I've seen these machines, I brought these machines to test them and to work with them and to research with them to nursing homes, where there, there was a woman there who lost a, uh, who lost a child. And she starts talking to it about that with this machine that starts to offer her 
solace. Yeah. And it was a, I, it, I thought it was a, a horrible moment. Yeah, I but see. that old woman, Sherry, as opposed to that kid who hopefully has a social infrastructure, that old woman may not have somebody to console her. So is it better to have a machine console her or nobody console her? I refuse that. I refuse that that's the choice that a society like us has. I refuse that that's our choice, that, that we can't organize high schools mm -hmm. to have, to have, you know, I, I believe that we're still in a world where we can organize high school students to be going over and talking to these elderly people. As many cultures do have this intergenerational As, thing like in Asia this, and other places. Or your yeah. children or your yeah. grandchildren. Or your, I mean, if we don't, if, in other words, if they don't have grandchildren, yeah. I just simply refuse that the choice is that a robot or nothing. That's, I mean, I just, I just absolutely refuse this. Be but, but more seriously, you know, if, if, if you as an adult want to have a kind of winking relationship and be chatting with Siri about, you know, your, your problems with, you know, your, your friends and your dates and your, your, your wife and your children and, you know, I, okay. If, I mean, you know, th that's a kind of act of consent. But to give this to kids who were who, who who were learning about what empathy yeah. is and what relationships are, I think this is playing with fire. And you know, we're talking with Sherry Turkle from MIT. You know, one uh, last question for me. You talked about being a writer. Um, I used to. Well, I guess I still do. Right. Um, this is like, this like is every the, Monday is, for the Boston yeah, Globe. This is, like, this is like other than Mrs. Lincoln. How did you like the play? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because in my, you know, <laughs> career as a, as a journalist, not a poet or anything yeah. that, that, that elevated, but it's easy to write something kind of quick and off yeah. the top of your head. But to write something really good, you really have to concentrate and think hard, which is difficult. And I often wonder when you talk about everything have to being so quick, 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 yeah, quick, yeah. quick, if our ability from children raised this way to really do that hard, concentrated brain work is going to be impacted or oh, can I, we just snap out of it and do I it? I think so. I think that the, 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 on my phone the three things I have is make sure you talk about boredom make sure you talk about solitude because I think that the two things that in all of this you know it's empathy, boredom and solitude that I'm worried about yeah. as human as, as, as the things it's kind of like the trifecta our ability to be our, in our solitude? Our ability to be in solitude. Okay. There's this experiment that was done, not by me, by a colleague, where it was a simple experiment. Uh, he asked, this is at the University of Virginia, he asked students, how about you sit without a book and without a, a phone in a chair for 15 minutes? And people said, okay, for money. And he said, well, what about, do you think that after 15, you know, in the course of 15 minutes, you'd want to give yourself electroshocks? And they said, absolutely not. He said, okay, just asking. But there was a handy electroshock machine, a, a live electroshock machine with a low-dose electroshocks there. And after six minutes, uh, uh, a statistically significant number of the students, uh, college students, both male and female, were shocking themselves rather than sit quietly without a book or without a phone. Wait a minute. To relieve the boredom or to, to get out of the, the other no, no, no. nine to minutes? Relieve the boredom to relieve the boredom of, of just having to sit there with their own thoughts. Because we, the, the, it was, it's just too much. We're used to, in a dull moment, yeah. having something. 
My dream is to be able to make it to six minutes, Sherry. I want you to know. <laughs> Before you go, you seem to be a relatively positive person, but it seems to me the genie is out of the proverbial bottle on the things that concern you most. I'm talking about, uh, primarily about the last thing we talked about, these sociable robots or programs or that sort of thing. Is five years from now, when you're back with us, are people going to have amongst their primary friends in their circles some AI monster? Or? You know, yesterday there was a, a sex, a male sex bot that was released that got a tremendous amount of attention. And it's interesting because there have been so many female sex bots yeah. that have been released. And yesterday, that it was trending on Twitter that finally there's a male sex bot. And it got so much. I mean, female sex bots are like nothing. But this one talks to you as well as makes love to you. And so you are worried about the future. I'm tremendously worried. How but much they cost, the male sex bots? Okay, really Marjorie, but, <laughs> but, but, but But I think that here's my optimism. Yes. Um, I think that there's a... And I try to say this in the, in the pieces that I write because I'm not completely uh, – we're talking. Facebook is trying to regroup and, 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 and have a – you know, and, and, and respond to some of the criticisms and try to redo its feed. Uh, Apple is going to respond in some way to this, to, the, to, to this critique by its major investors. Uh, people are talking – I, I've been doing this for 30 years, and people didn't used to talk to me – I mean, they, they spoke with me, but they didn't really speak with me like m maybe something could happen. I mean, I think people are starting to feel this technology is really getting under our skin a little yeah. bit. I, I, I think there could be a kind of uh, consumer response saying, I want my phone, but I want it my way. Can't I, I have so. my phone different? Can't I have my phone my way? Can you Can you design the phone like a little different for me. Uh, do I really? And and we did have one major success. Mattel pulled a um, a, a sociable robot called Aristotle. Oh, we was, talked about this. Yeah, yeah good. That was supposed to yeah. just sit in your baby's room, kind of a cradle to grave model, that was going to be just talking to your baby, giving bedtime stories and lullabies and how do you like your teacher and how do you like your dad and how do you like your mom and what's going on. And That was over privacy concerns, though, was it? Well, it was over, it, they pulled it over privacy concerns, but it was bad in every yeah. way. So I, I think that the more parents ask themselves this question, the more we all ask ourselves this question, there's, there's no reason that this can't be different. I'll text you later. We can talk okay, more we'll about talk it. Okay, we'll talk about Sherry Turkle, you're great. Sherry Turkle is the founder and director of the MIT Initiative on Technology and Self. She's also a professor of social studies of science and technology at MIT. Her newest book is the New York Times bestseller, Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk in a Digital Age. Uh, Sherry, thanks again for joining us. Coming up, Maine made history last year when voters decided to expand Medicaid, but with Governor Paul LePage putting up a fight, what will it take to make this the law of the land? That conversation is next, 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
He's Jim Browdy. And she's Marjorie Egan. And this is 89.7 WGBH, WGBH HD1, Boston. Online at WGBHnews.org. Boston's local NPR. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She is Marjorie Egan. As you know, we discussed this a lot in last fall. Last November, the people of Maine voted on a ballot initiative to expand Medicaid. But Governor Paula Page is refusing to implement it unless the legislature can find funding without raising taxes or tapping reserves. Joining us in line to talk about what it will take to make it a reality is the Speaker of Maine's House of Representatives, Democrat Sarah Gideon. Speaker Gideon, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. How are you today? We're excellent. We're great. Thanks. We're great. Thanks for being here. So, um, uh, Sarah Gideon, let's start with um, – it surprised me, really, because the, race, the presidential race is pretty close up in Maine. Uh, Hillary Clinton won, but uh, President Trump was, was close behind her. And I know the governor has been hostile to Medicaid expansion. But tell us how the ballot question happened up there that got the expansion of Medicaid passed via the voters. Yeah, well, thanks for asking that question. Uh, Medicaid expansion was something that we tried to do through the legislature five times. Five times we passed it in both the House and the Senate, and five times it was vetoed, and we were not able to override that veto. And as we have seen happen with other issues, uh, the voters in Maine decided to take matters into their own hands. We have a citizen initiative, uh, citizen referendum process here And people said, we have access to these federal dollars. We want to have access to health care for ourselves, for our neighbors. This is good for everyone, and we're going to make it happen. And what they did was they really launched a grassroots campaign. They made sure that they were out door-to-door educating people about what it would mean to them, and um, it worked. 59%, almost 60% of these voters. You know, one yeah. of the, you know, we talked a lot, uh, uh, Speaker Gideon, during the campaign. Not, uh, I mean, during the presidential cycle, not just about what was about to be voted on in your state, this ballot initiative, but about how it almost seems sadistic. On, I think I'm speaking for both of us when there were governors who, clearly for political reasons, in my estimation, were refusing to accept the expansion of Medicaid, free dollars from the federal government not for some boondoggle, but to expand coverage, uh, health coverage to low-income people. What was the LePage argument in state prior to the ballot question as to why a veto was good for the people of your state? Well, you know, the governor's opposition to health care through Medicaid expansion um, really goes back to his misinformation. He thinks of health care for low-income people as welfare. 
and it is simply a very ideological position that he holds. Um, there, there are no facts, there are no data that will convince him otherwise. Um, so he likes to say that these are able-bodied people who refuse to work, who are looking for health care. And even when you present the facts and say, look, there are 70% of the people who qualify for health care under Medicaid expansion are actually working people who simply can't afford the cost of health care insurance. Um, it, it, it just falls on deaf ears. So that's his argument. It really doesn't make a lot of sense. And what, what is his, my apologies that I don't know the answer to this, what is his response when I assume people like you or the ballot people say, well, fine, they'll just go to emergency rooms instead, and they'll either get more expensive care or not get care and get sicker, and then they'll ultimately end up at the emergency room at greater cost to all of us. What, what does LePage say to that? Uh, you know, I, I, unfortunately, I, I cannot really articulate his arguments. Um, okay. I, I'm not sure if that's because they don't make sense to me, or, <laughs> but I try to never speak for our governor. Uh, you know, his, his arguments are not ones that I really find have a lot of basis to them. So what we know for sure is that this is not only good for the people who will be able to see a doctor when they need one, but in fact, it's also good for people who even are in the marketplace now, who have health insurance now. It's going to ultimately mean their rates go down. It's going to mean that we've got an entire generation of kids who are growing up in healthier homes with healthier parents who are able to work and function um, and that means strong communities all the way into our future. Well, you know, even though he didn't win on Election Day, I assume he's declaring victory with this new health and human services policy, this work requirement thing where states like yours, and my understanding is that your governor wants it, have the ability to attach a work requirement to to certain recipients of Medicaid. We just spoke to Art Kaplan, who's a regular on our show, a medical ethicist from NYU, who excoriated the whole notion of uh, how a work requirement is good either for the recipient or the taxpayer. Where are you on this? Oh, that's right. I mean, we think it is really... You know, both both Governor Paula Page or President Trump will say that this is to encourage people to go to work. We we think it is just the opposite. We think it is just discouraging people from um, you know being able to to access the services they need, and um, it's it's doing the exact opposite of what's intended. It's removing people from. Uh, having access to health care. It is removing them from the roles with this idea that somehow they have magically um, are doing better. And in fact, that that's not true. Uh, so unfortunately, what we've seen in Maine under this governor is that the increase in the number of people who are living in poverty um, has only gone up, and that's in direct proportion to these sort of uh, anti-people welfare reform policies he's put in place. This work requirement is just one more example of that. Unfortunately, that will be seen not just in Maine, but state by state across the country. Uh, we're talking to Sarah Gideon. She's the Speaker of Maine's House of Representatives. Um, Sarah, you were quoted in this piece by Kaiser Health News about uh, Medicaid expansion and why the governor's resisting. And there's a story that just kind of breaks your heart about a woman named Donna Wall who's got 
not one, not two, but three adult autistic children that she takes care of in her home in Lewiston. And as anybody knows, that is that is basically a full-time job. But when her twin sons turned 18, uh, Maine's Medicaid program dropped her health insurance because she's considered now to be a childless adult. Now, despite the fact that she's 60 years old, uh, has three adult autistic children that she's taking care of all the time, she goes out, and if we think it's cold here, it's freezing up where you are. Uh, she goes out every night delivering newspapers for 150 bucks a, a week in the frigid weather. These are the kind of people uh, that, you know, your heart goes out to them. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and when I just referred to, you know, policies, anti-people welfare reform, I put that in quotation policies, that this governor has really pushed through his administration, she is the direct result um, of, of these policies, someone who was once eligible for health care and then became ineligible for health care, uh, you know, when her son turned a certain age. And in fact, after that story was reported, I believe it was after the story was reported and not in the story, she was out delivering newspapers. The 60-year-old woman who's taking care of three disabled adult children and broke her arm slipping on the ice. Um, so it's just you really realize um, such an uphill battle every single day for people who are working hard, trying to do the right thing, trying to take care of their family and themselves. You know, I, I, I love Maine. I know Marjorie does too, and I know a bunch of Mainers. How did Paul Page get elected? I mean, is this was it was it a, a third party candidate thing? Where is that? What's happened two times here? What what's this about? Yeah, well, you, you know Maine does have a uh, strong streak of independents who run for office and and win. Um, and we had another example of a three-way race, uh, an independent, a Democratic uh, candidate, and a Republican candidate. And when Governor LePage was initially elected to office with 38% of the vote, um, it was because of that three-way That's race. Right. So he was reelected for a second term now, um, and I think that what you see in Maine is what we have continued to see across the nation, especially in these larger rural states that were once manufacturing states, where you've got a population of people um, whose lives have changed, whose jobs have changed, and they are looking for something different and or looking for someone to blame. And Paul LePage was one of those first mm-hmm. candidate who sort of rode in on that wave. Is there any truth to the rumor that when he's term limited, he's going to be appointed Secretary of State by Donald Trump? Is it? <laughs> We're talking to Sarah. Uh, no, no. I don't. I don't. I, I don't believe so. But I, 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 I know he spent a lot of time in Washington, and I'm certain that he would be thrilled to be offered a job in that administration. We're talking to Sarah Gideon, who is the Democratic Speaker of the House of Representatives in Maine. And the reason we talked to her, Esther on to begin with is because the people of her state rose up after five vetoes by their governor of Medicaid expansion and decided to do it by themselves. Right. And by the way, Maine seems to have started a trend. There are other uh, red states like Nevada, uh, Nebraska, rather, where uh, people are trying to do the same thing as they did, put the, put this Medicaid uh, issue to voters. Because... So is it going to happen? I mean, is the, what, if he's not going to sign a tax increase and he says you can't tap reserves, what's the latest? What is it? 54 million is the state's share. Am I right about that or something? Is that right? Yeah. Right. So it's full implementation and the full scale down to 90% reimbursement from the feds, we're looking at a $54 million cost to the state of Maine. That 
that full cost uh, is implemented by the year 2021. And then in turn, as we put in $54 million, the state of Maine receives $500 million. Oh my God. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, so it, wait, it's wait, stop there. Stop there. Wait, 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 stop there. I thought it was that. a 50-50 split. Wow. I was obviously wrong. No, it's mostly so from the feds. If you, the people of Maine and its government, put up $54 million, you get 10 times that much, yeah. nine times that much from the federal government, and Paula Page says, we're not doing it? That's That's right. That's right. Yes. That is unbelievable. But we are, but we will do it. And, you know, to go back to your question, I I think that that is the the fundamental things to remember here are, are, um, first of all, this is the law. Uh, We are expanding health care access and health insurance to 70 to 80,000 people through Medicaid expansion. It's the law. We expect uh, the people to be able to start enrolling around July 2nd, according to how this was passed at the ballot box. There are steps that this administration is required by law to take in order to um, create that space for eligibility for people. And at that point, we'll be able to see as the legislature, A, and I will remind our governor of this, separate but equal branch of government, then we will be able to see exactly what dollar amount needs to be appropriated in 2018, in 2019, in 2020, and we will make that appropriation. Um, And I do expect that the governor will not go gently into that Good night. He will go kicking and screaming as far as he can. Um, we will be saying goodbye to him at the end of 2018 and welcoming a new governor into place in January of 2019. And we'll see whether that next or initial appropriation needs to be made at the end of 2018 or the beginning of 2019. But we will be doing it. Good. We're talking to Speaker uh, House uh, Speaker Sarah Gideon uh, from the uh, from Maine and the House of Representatives up there. You know, one last thing for me. I, I know you're a Democrat, uh, but your uh, senator, Susan Collins up there, is a uh, what I think most of us would call a moderate Republican, uh, like our governor here in Massachusetts, Charlie Baker. And she became a hero to many people when she stood up against the health care uh, repeal, which would have meant, meant millions and millions of people losing their health insurance. Yet she, in my estimation, folded on this tax bill, which by most accounts is going to mean massive tax cuts for massive corporations and millionaires and billionaires, a pittance for the middle class and for the poor, and is also going to mean millions of people are going to lose their health care. So what's the thinking up there by people in your party about why Susan Collins did this? Well, I mean, all of us really were so disappointed um, by her vote on on that tax package, the Trump tax package. And it did come on the heels of really a number of votes and decisions that she made over this past year uh, that reflected that moderate point of view that, that, that you mentioned. Um, you know, if you look at health care versus taxes, I mean, I, I look at her decision about how to vote on health care and I say this you know, Senator Collins, she looked at the constituents of Maine. She did her research. She understood what was going to happen to the average Mainer, and she made her decision based on that. And she did the right thing, just as any senator or representative would, you know, should do. And we were so proud of her, really, and and grateful um, for that. But um, then in direct contrast to that, 
this tax package does not help Maine people by any stretch of the imagination and, um, in fact, will hurt them. And with this individual mandate piece and some other pieces that she knew and initially asked to be fixed at the same time, they were never addressed. Um, it's really, it's really going to hurt us. So I can't explain what her thinking was in that. Um, but I think that would be a great question for you all to pose to her. Tell her we're looking for, will you please? Hey, uh, Sarah Gideon, before you go, I had one last question. Correct me if I'm wrong. I, we were just talking about the question, the Medicaid question, obviously passed by the people of Maine in 2017. Did you not pass on the 2016 ballot, the people of Maine, a 3% surcharge on people who earn more than 200 grand a year? Um, yeah, so we had in 2016 five ballot questions, uh, major, uh, major policy questions, and four of which passed. The only one that didn't pass was background checks on guns, um, and one of them was a 3% surcharge on incomes over 200000 uh, to go to edu- public education okay. funding. Another one was minimum wage increase. Wow. Um, and then another one was ranked choice voting, which was a direct result of uh, that 38% that they, this current governor wrote in on. So I have one last quick question. We only have a minute here. You, pro- you may or may not know we're another state of the 25 or 26 that allows laws, constitutional amendments to be passed by the voters themselves on the ballot. We have what's being called a millionaire's tax on the ballot, a constitutional amendment here that would apply a 4% surcharge, not a 3% surcharge, and not to people making more than 200 grand, but people making more than a million a year. Are there any la- – first of all, did you support the ballot question? Well, um, I, I, I was a public supporter of the ballot question. But, we did end up changing – No, I know uh, that. Yeah, yeah. We did but you supported the question. Uh, but my question is, is there any any advice you'd give to advocates here? Were there lessons learned about the campaign that caused your fellow citizens to vote for it that are relevant to a state to your south or, or what? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the key is there, there's two things that happen in a state where, um, you know, the legislature can change any law, whether it is something that was initially implemented through the legislative process or through the referendum same process. Same here, same here. And that is to make sure that, you know, that you're also electing people who are going to uphold those those laws mm-hmm. um, or the will of the people, so to speak. And that was a fundamental missing piece in the main equation. I see. Hey, uh, Sarah Gideon, it's great to meet you over the phone. We hope yeah, if you're ever you. in town to come see us. Thanks so much. Thank you also for having me, and have a great day. You too. Sarah Gideon is a Democrat and the Speaker of Maine's House of Representatives. Uh, Thank you to uh, Sarah Gideon for coming to talk to us, or at least talking to us on the phone, as Jim just said. Before you introduce the next segment, New York Times lead story, North and South Korean teams to march as one in the Olympics. Wow. The two countries' delegations will march at the opening ceremony behind a unified Korea flag. That shows an undivided Korean peninsula. I don't know how significant that is politically, but it seems like a pretty good big deal to me. It seems like wonderful news. Well, I hope it is. Okay, coming up, it is time for our concert roundtable. Thank, Thank God. goodness. <laughs> a preview of some of the best music events in town. Brian McCree, Brian O'Donovan, and Rob Hoshield are next. We're going to do classical, we're going to do folk and popular, and we're going to do jazz. That's all next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brady and Marjorie Egan. We both said thank God at the exact same time. <laughs> it's time for our concert roundtable, a preview of upcoming performances and a range of uh, genres. Joining us, as they always do for these things, are uh, WCRB's Brian McCreeth. He's the producer of CRB's Boston Symphony Orchestra broadcast, the executive producer of CRB in Concert, and host of an interview podcast from CRB called The Answered Question. Hello to you, Brian. Hey, how you doing? Rob Hoshield is an associate professor of liberal arts at Berklee College of Music. Rob, it's great to have you. Thank you. Hello, everyone. And Brian O'Donovan, who we learned a few months ago, looks exactly like, as a child, Tori Bedford, our producer, (laughs) as a grown-up. Stunning. Go to her Twitter feed. It is really incredible. I can see that. I have the benefit of that comparison. It is real. Well, I'd say that's true. Is the host of GBH's A Celtic Sojourn, Brian. This Brian, it's great to see you as well. Okay. We are so excited to see all you guys have some music entertainment from now until the end of the show. (laughs) So why don't we start with you, Brian? You're the first one, man. Brian Brian McCree from WCRP. Take it away. Yeah. So I want to talk about this woman named Joan Tower. She's one of the, uh, the, uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and use the pun. She's a tower. Composer of our time, mm. <laughs> she is a great composer. One of one of this country's really spectacular composers. She's approaching her 80th birthday, and wow. the Boston Modern Orchestra Project is devoting an entire concert to her music, and that's coming up on February 9th at Jordan Hall. Boston Modern Orchestra Project only plays music by living composers. It's one of this town's really wonderful gems that uh, that kind of disproves that notion that, that classical music is all about the dusty books and the, the, the stuff from three centuries ago. Or, or men. Or men. Thank you, Marjorie. Yeah. Right. Because, because there was Not just a piece in the Globe point, talking about the dearth of women composers, and they, were, of course, were raising the composer's children uh, enabling the composers <laughs> to compose while they were changing the diapers. That's what I figured was going yeah, on, right? Yeah, was you, it you would think so. Schumann or Claire was Schumann was yeah, an amazing, was amazing pianist wonderful. and yes. a composer as well. Yes. Yeah, well done. Impressive. She had to deal with. We're going to come back to Clara Schumann in, in a later okay. segment of this program, right. <laughs> but but for now, yeah, Joan Tower. I mean, you know, classical seasons. Uh, well, all seasons really are, are planned fairly far in advance. So it's not as though this concert is just a response to that. This isn't just sort of knee jerk. Oh, let's have a woman compose. I mean, Gil Rose at Boston Modern Orchestra. Project wants to honor Joan Tower, an entire evening devoted to her music. Um, she's really well known for a piece that she wrote about uh, 30 years ago called Fanfare for the Uncommon Woman, dedicated to Marin Alsop, the conductor of the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. Anyway, um, one of the pieces that I really want to highlight on this all Joan Tower concert by the Boston Modern Orchestra Project is a thing called Made in America. Let's just listen to a little bit of this and um, and and see if you pick up a little bit here of something familiar as you listen. This is Made in America by Joan Tower. Okay, I give up. Does anybody oh. know what we should have picked up? Anybody I'm, in this room? You just America, got it. Uh, oh, was? America the Beautiful. Exactly. Yeah, bum, bum, oh, my bum, God. Bum, bum, exactly. Right. So this is a 13-minute piece that Joan Tower wrote, um, I think in 2001, something like that, on a commission. It was a kind of fairly interesting backstory, too. It was a commission that, uh, that, w- that came from Ford Motor Company. And th- what they did was they gathered orchestras from all over the country, small orchestras that don't get chances to commission very often. 
and they put their resources behind it. And Joan Tower wrote this thing based on America the Beautiful as a way of sort of expressing her own feelings about this country, taking this iconic song that we always kind of think of as just, yeah, it's kind of just nice and pretty and, and we kind of feel good when we, when we hear it. But she's got real meaning behind this 13-minute piece. And I want to read from her notes. It's just a little bit of a quote here. This theme is challenged by more aggressive and dissonant ideas that keep interrupting, interjecting, and unsettling it. But America the Beautiful keeps resurfacing in different guises, as if to say, I'm still here ever-changing, but holding my own. A musical struggle is heard throughout the work. Perhaps it was my unconscious reaction to the challenge of how do we keep America beautiful, dignified, and free? And then she went on to say, brought to you by the Ford Motor exactly. Company. Exactly. <laughs> that was uh, it's actually quite... Right, quite, right. There you sorry. go, Jay. Destroy the yeah, mood. Thanks a lot, Jay. There's also an irony in there with Henry what? Ford's uh, reputation for uh, Yeah, yeah, everything. no doubt. Maybe Ford was trying to... <laughs> do a little bit of uh, its own rehabilitation. <laughs> okay. But what I like is the theme of that piece, and especially the idea that Joan Tower has an entire concert devoted to her. Again, that's coming up on February 9th at Jordan Hall. Okay, how about Brian to Brian, this time O'Donovan? Okay, the great, I'm on. It is uh, a, a theme that I don't normally cover in this segment. I love to go outside of my kind of sweet spot, of course, which is Celtic music here, but there's an exception this weekend that I really want to highlight because it is musicians doing for musicians themselves. It's Boston Celtic Music Festival, which started 15 years ago, and really a group of Celtic musicians who came together and said, you know, we're not just going to wait for some commercial entity to come in and create a festival for us. We're going to simply do it ourselves. And they started it back in, uh, you know, around Club Passim and Davis Square. They've since uh, consolidated it to Harvard Square. But again, for anybody out there who's interested in Celtic music at its more granular level, really top quality musicianship and music, but bringing kids to this anytime over the weekend will really uh, give them an idea that they can do th- things for themselves, that music is about coming together. It isn't about all formality. You know, I often encourage people who are taking their kids to classical lessons and maybe not it's not resonating with them, or maybe it is, bringing them to this festival and seeing music Music being played spontaneously and in the moment and really wonderfully by these people putting on workshops and concerts and fun things in and around Harvard Square. Club Pass seem very much behind this. So what are we hearing? We're going to hear a piece uh, uh, from a, a Tufts grad here. Her name is Katie McNally. She's put together a trio she would have started as a young child as part of Boston Celtic music scene. She's now a big deal. She's heading over to Glasgow's Celtic Connections next week and will be, um, will be featured there as well. She's uh, in much in demand. But take a listen to this piece. It's taking Celtic music uh, in a different direction as these kids tend to do. Katie (laughs) McNally. happening here, you, you take fairly traditional music but you wrap it in very different clothes and immediately you see the influences on these kids. These are kids who are listening to hip-hop, they're listening to contemporary music they're very much invested in their own cultural music and, and in case of Katie McNally that's very much Scottish and Cape Breton tradition 
but uh, but they're also willing to experiment and bring it into a new context of vibrancy and vitality. Speaking of kids, what was the name of the young woman, oh, your brother Fiddler, great. you brought to the library oh in December? What was her name? Haley Richardson. Oh, she, she was, was otherworldly. Yeah. How old was she? 15? 15. Uh, Brian subsequently saw her in performance at a Christmas Celtic sojourn. Yeah. And why, wasn't she something, Brian? Oh, she's she's amazing. I mean, and amazing in, a, in, 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 in more the artistic sense than you think of with prodigies. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not that she dazzled with some kind of technique that was, you know, kind of from another planet. It was more that there was this sincere, honest, beautiful musicianship, yeah. just beautiful artistry, just understated right there on the and honest, understated and honest. Yeah, it was and really and really, beautiful. that's an interesting thing because that's that's what Boston Celtic Music Festival is about. It's a great effort. It's non-commercial. Nobody is making money out of this. Believe me, but they've got events at Passim, at the Sinclair, who's come on board at the church right there at the end of Church Street in in Zero Church. It's actually called in yeah. uh, Harvard Square, and it's just a place to wander around. There's a great buzz to it. Uh, old and young getting together li- alike and enjoying and sharing this music. It's really a place to be this weekend. Okay, I'm laughing listen, because we have to read the to note this, from Brian our coworkers. Jonathan, there is no greater praise from our very critical and discerning coworkers, Amanda and Molly. Both sobbed throughout the entirety of the Christmas Celtic social. Aww. And it wasn't because I paid you to go there? <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty great. That, I love that. Okay, okay Rob. So go see if you can make our staff cry. I'm <laughs> going to give it my best. Uh, we've got Monty <laughs> Alexander to talk about coming to town. And Monty Alexander is a pianist who was actually born in Kingston, Jamaica, just a few months before Bob Marley. Oh. But his career went in a very different direction. He studied classical when he was young, and then he got into jazz as a teenager, started gigging, he moved to Miami, and Sinatra uh, heard him in a club in Miami playing piano. Before you know it, he was in New York playing with all the greats and building a career. And now he's really seen in the jazz world as one of the greats himself, um, has, has a great exuberant swinging feel. Uh, he's going to be at Scullers a week from Friday. The thing with his music is, uh, even though he's been so focused on jazz his whole career, Caribbean and reggae influences sometimes come in. In the 90s, he actually started working with a couple of reggae musicians named Sly and Robbie, Sly Dunbar and Robbie Shakespeare, and, and made instrumental reggae music, which is actually really cool stuff. So I recommend that. What we're going to hear at uh, Scullers a week from uh, Friday is his trio. And um, listen uh, when we play this track for the way he almost like sings in his right hand on the piano. So let's listen to a little bit of Monty Alexander. Brian is feigning, smoking, and drinking over here <laughs> in the jazz that club. That is exactly that's what you, that's what about you feel. Right. <laughs> Too bad you can't smoke anymore in the Regatta Bar. Or Scullers. Scullers, yeah. Try it. So it's going to be a little bit of a vibe like this with his trio there. Uh, it should be a really beautiful night of jazz from this sort of, I don't want to call him an elder statesman because he, he has a lot of energy, continues to tour a lot. So it's a great chance to 
check him out. And you'll probably hear a little bit of that Caribbean influence here and there as well. Yeah. Monty. Yeah. Hey, Amanda, Molly, and all the others who are not crying at the moment, are we still posting all of these on our website for those who are drunk? Okay. At the end of this, don't get anxious. Just go to our website, wgbhnews.org, click on Boston Public Radio, and you'll find uh, the list of all the selections. Brian McCreeth's round two. Yes. Well, there's a group that we've talked about occasionally in the past in these segments. They're called A Far Cry. And yes. what I love about A Far Cry is that they are a conductorless chamber orchestra. They're a collective. They, they join in together to create these things. All their concerts are curated by one member. Right, so one member sort of like says, "I've got this idea for a concert. I want to put it together." Oh, Other members, I think, they throw in their ideas and everything. But there are two concerts. They have a kind of funny scheduling this year. I don't know quite why they they ended up doing this. Might be just the schedule of the halls that were available. They're going to do a concert this coming Friday, and then a concert a week from Sunday. Totally different programs, but the first one is called Albion, and it's all about English music. And the second one, which is the one the following weekend, is called Guardians of the Groove. Uh, and uh, what I love about it, the they're, so, they're so creative in the way they take these themes and, and, and wrap different, different ideas through them. Guardians of the Groove begins with a, with a French Baroque suite that is all about dancing, and then it goes into this thing called Suite from Run, Rabbit, Run. That was actually a CD. I honestly don't quite know how they're going to do this as a performance, but it's a whole bunch of things that were on one CD that I don't know if it's ever been performed live. It's an live. Updike novel title. Well, as there's well. that, yeah, there's the Updike reference too, right? right. And then they're going to do the, the Vorjak Serenade for Strings. The one coming up this Friday, Albion, is all about uh, uh, English, English music. And so they're, they're starting with some selections from uh, these composers, Matthew Locke and Henry Purcell, Elizabethan composers who wrote uh, music for Shakespeare plays. And, um, and so, uh, the, well, actually, I shouldn't say Elizabethan. They were a little bit later, but they were writing music to reference Shakespeare plays. And then they're also going to do a piece by a 20th century composer named Benjamin Britten. Love him. That's a serenade for tenor. Their soloist is a fellow named Nicholas Pahn. He's an American uh, singer who grew up in Michigan. And here's a little bit of Nicholas Pond singing a personal song. This isn't actually one of the songs that they'll be singing this Friday, but I don't have a recording of him doing that. But take, take a listen to Nicholas Pond singing Purcell. by Henry Purcell. Purcell wrote music for The Fairy Queen, which is based on uh, Midsummer Night's Dream in a way. Matthew Locke wrote music on The Tempest, and Nicholas Pond's going to be singing these. I also have another uh, little cut of music with Nicholas Pond singing some Britain. Again, uh, he's singing the serenade for tenor with A Far Cry. This isn't that exact piece, but again, I want to give you a sense of how Britain sounds compared to Purcell. Let's, let's take a listen to this. There's this amazing quality in Benjamin Britten's music that's just kind of haunting, you know? It's it's beautiful, but there's a little bit of a, this dark edge to it. And and with the Serenade for Tenor, um, it's all English poets, 
all on a theme of night, nighttime. And it's with solo horn, so that plays a big role in it that, that you don't hear in this particular piece. But You said you're a fan, Marjorie? Did I hear well, you say that? I, Benjamin Britten's Christmas carols, um, yeah. if people haven't heard them, they're absolutely right, the ceremony of wonderful. Carols. The ceremony yeah. of carols is a yeah. great... One of my favorite Christmas yes, albums. Yes. I just love it. Yeah, it is. It is one of the really great seasonal pieces that yeah. Britton wrote. But he, but he's so significant beyond even the serenade or this piece that we heard or the the ceremony of carols um, for his impact on 20th century music. He was like the first really um, modern British composer. I mean, Vaughan Williams and Hulse, these other British composers through the early 20th century were sort of laying groundwork for him. But then he comes along with the War Requiem and, and these unbelievable pieces. He's also the one who wrote The Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra, which a lot of people like you know began to figure out when they were taken on school trips to the orchestra. But anyway, Serenade for Tenor is part of A Far Cry this coming Friday and then A Far Cry again coming up the following weekend at the Gardner Museum. So okay. hope you check that out. Brian O'Donovan, you are next. Switching gears. This is a little bit of a twist, but a group that has been uh, one of my favorites since uh, first hearing in them about them back in 2007 for my daughter. My young kids tend to keep me, um, keep me abreast of what's happening in music. But this was particularly surprising because we're talking about two uh, sisters who were raised just outside Stockholm in Sweden. And yet they sing as if they were born in Austin or Southern California. They became enamored with country music and uh, have become a sensation, not just in country music, but in contemporary music around the world for their unique harmonies particularly, but an amazing ability to write songs as if they were much older than they actually are. They've attracted attention from uh, the likes of Bob Dylan and Emmylou Harris about whom they sing in this song we, co- we are going to hear. It is called Emmy Lou. And this is not exactly <laughs> music that you would think is coming from Stockholm, Jim, is it? <laughs> I love this. Could be coming from the Stockholm Baron Grill in Somerville. <laughs> is important here listen in when it's you when it changes here like a ghost in my mind I am defeated and I gladly wear the crown here it comes So here are two sisters that are totally enamoured with the American country music scene. All of its sound, all of its wonderful poetry and all of its mythology around it. I'll be your Emmy Lou if you'll be my June, uh, meaning June Carter, of course. And I'll be your John and Graham Parsons, which reflects uh, Johnny Cash and Graham Parsons. The heroes that these kids grew up with. But they're not just imitating them, they're taking their musical influences and creating something completely new, incorporating their own stories in even referring to Stockholm's cold. Yeah. <laughs> no disputing that. We should talk in Boston, right? I love that line. They, they tell me I'm supposed to be good at this. Or exactly. I'm supposed to be able to deal with this. But since then, this group first, they're called First Aid Kit. 
and uh, the Soderberg uh, sisters. And they have toured and they're extraordinarily popular and they're back uh, in February, uh, February 7th at the House of Blues. I was amazed yesterday when I was researching this that there are still some tickets available because I can't imagine this is not going to be sold out instantly. It's such an appealing group, such great music and they continue to make an inf- impact around the you world. Know, before, I'm sorry. Oh, I, I was just going to mention, you know what, whose voice that reminds me of and mm-hmm. it might be because of that, uh, that sort of Texas twang that's laid underneath there is, um, is Nancy Griffith. Yeah, a little bit right? definitely. That, yeah, that yeah. really light, beautiful, kind of angelic voice. I think they're basically channeling all of those influences over the years. Yeah. You know, uh, before we move to Rob Hoshield here, were you a Cranberries fan? Obviously, oh sadly, God. they're oh. in the news oh. the last oh. couple of days. Was I a Cranberries fan? I, th- I think she is one of the great influences in modern Dolores pop, pop music. Dolores O'Riordan. So sad. What 46. Happened? I don't think I've gotten the full story what happened. She had a very troubled life, Marjorie. Yeah. She grew up in Limerick, which is was, a, was and some would say continues to be, but, but it is much better now, but it was a very troubled city back when she was growing up. And she grew up in a fairly dysfunctional household and suddenly was trust into... She was a very shy girl and suddenly trust into this unbelievable world. There's, there's stories about sexual abuse, about dysfunctional family, drug abuse. Uh, she had a huge problem with anger and hallucination. She was tossed off a plane here, I think, in, in, and arrested from a, a flight here from Boston one time in the fairly, fairly recent past. But it looked like she was getting, as often happens in these, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, getting better. Something getting better, and then something happens like this. 46 years 46 old. Now. What mm. a voice, what an influence. Mm. And, uh, of course, people are, are, are uh, dusting off their Cranberry records. That's what I've been doing the last couple is, of days. Isn't it amazing really, music? She was amazing. I mean, she was groundbreaking, and that voice and the way she approached that uh, vocal range and incorporated really into, into pop music at a time when grunge was very, very popular, she kind of smoothened out the edges yeah. of that and took it in a different direction. She'll be sorely missed. Absolutely. Rob Hoshield, you are up. Well, thank you very much. Uh, the next person I'd like to talk about is a great vocalist from the jazz world, Diane Reeves, mm. who's coming to Boston next month. She's really one of the most talented vocalists on the scene. She's won five Grammy Awards. But if you haven't... I've actually heard of her. It's you so have hot. heard of her I'm now. so <laughs> thrilled when we have these things, when someone names an artist that I've actually heard of. Go ahead. Well, the, I sure, was going sure to that, ask... You're not thinking of Diane Steele? <laughs> no, I actually have heard of her. Thank you, Brian. I doubt it, but I appreciate it. It's interesting you say that, Jim, because I think a lot of people may know about her and not be aware because she was in a movie called Good Night and Good Luck. Does Ooh. everybody remember right, that? Yeah. That was yeah, the, yeah. the Clooney yeah. biopic about yeah. Edward R. Murrow. Yeah. Oh, and yes. if you remember, there was all these scenes where the newsmen would be walking down a hallway and there'd be a jazz band playing in a studio and that was Diane Reeves with a group of today's musicians playing 50s style jazz music so that really helped place her on the map in a lot of ways but to the jazz obsessives out there she's (laughs) been pretty well known for a very long time so she's from Detroit she began recording in the 80s and she sort of comes from the Dinah Washington Sarah Vaughan school um, has released about 15 albums as a leader, and she just has an extraordinary ability to interpret lyric and melody and to make any composition her own. And that's really what makes her, uh, that's really what's helped make her name. So let's listen to a little bit of a tune. This is her doing Duke Ellington's Solitude. Listen to the way Diane Reeves really makes this melody and lyric her own. <laughs> Solitude 
so just really amazing control of the vocal there. Uh, you hear that, and you, and you just think, how much training does it take to do that? And, I, and, uh, and how does that come out of a human being? I mean, it really <laughs> is amazing. So yeah, it's, it's beautiful. So I would kind of have to listen to the way she takes this out here for a second. <laughs> yes. So nice. February 16th at the Berkeley Performance Center. And the piano player you heard there is her uh, is often her accompanist, Peter Martin. He'll be in that show oh. at the BBC next month as well, Diane Reeves. You know, every time you guys come in here, I think to myself, all these unbelievably talented people that I've never heard of. That's exactly <laughs> what I think you know, of. All floating around. <laughs> I mean, it's just amazing. Anyway, we're going to keep pre- previewing upcoming concerts in the region with WCRB's Brian McCreef, Berkeley College of Music's Rob Hoshield, and WGBH's own Brian O'Donovan. We're going to keep doing it until the show ends. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And much more importantly, if you just tuned in, you're landed in the middle of our concert roundtable, a preview of upcoming performances in the area. Leading the way, as always, are WCRB's Brian McCreeth, Berkeley College of Music's Rob Hoshield, and GBH's Brian O'Donovan. And uh, we're gonna, I love when Marjorie said a minute ago, we're going to keep doing this and, until she, and she paused, and I thought she was going to say, until we're just sick of it. But, <laughs> but then she we'll said until the end of the uh, show. So I think Brian McCreeth, it would be you okay. who's up next. Hold on, hold on. Before, oh, before we get to oh, Brian I'm McCreeth, sorry. Yeah, you I just want to mention lots of people are emailing about who's who and who are we hearing. Everything is going to be on our website. So you can just go to WGBH News. News. Dot. Dot com. Org. org. Thank you. <laughs> WGBHnews.org. And you and look We've only Boston been here Public, about 30, 40 I know, years. Boston Public Radio. There's no and rush you can to see get caught up on this. Of, and dates, who's singing, who they are, where they're going to be performing, and all that. Info. I'm sorry. What's the website again? I forgot. WGBHnews.org. Thank you very much, okay. Brian McCree. Brian McCree. Take it away. Take it away. <laughs> oh, wait, this is lightning round, correct? Yeah. Right. yeah. Round, Go ahead. Go hey, ahead. Hey, so here's the thing. I, I just want to actually, in spite of lightning round, I have to say that I, I'm sure it's the case for Rob and Brian. It is so hard to choose what to highlight here because there oh, are yeah. so many unbelievable concerts going on. So please don't take the the simple few links we've got on that website as the only things that went on. There's so much point. more that deserves to be talked about. Mm-hmm. But that said, I'm going to dive right in with the Boston Symphony because they've got a really significant project that's launching next month. Um, in a way, it's already launched, but this is their cooperative agreement with the Leipzig Gavon oh, yeah. Orchestra. And it really kicks off in a big way with Leipzig Week in Boston. It's going to be a lot of fun. Andres Nelson is the music director of both orchestras, both of them legendary, both of them sort of ancient in their way with amazing histories and tons of historical connections between them that really make it exciting. But the programs themselves, um, the BSO is doing a a show that, um, a program that includes a Bach triple concerto for pianos, three pianos, a concerto uh, by Bach, two Schumann uh, choral pieces, and Mendelssohn's Scottish Symphony, all these by Leipzig composers. Then there's also a brand new commissioned work because a big part of this uh, agreement between the two orchestras is commissioning new works. To believe it or not, there's actually a part of it that I'm even, I don't know, more excited about. But I, I certainly love that there's a part of it that includes a Boston Symphony Chamber Players concert Ooh. that is half 
uh, half of it is being done by players from the Gewandhaus Orchestra. That's so great. these players are coming over That's from great. Germany. They're going to do a Haydn Quartet. Then the BSO chamber players are going to do um, a, a wind quintet. Then they're going to do some stuff together. I want to highlight this one piece they're doing together because it's just such a great, fantastic, fun piece of music. This is a part of um, the Octet for Strings by Felix Mendelssohn. Let's just check out a little bit of this. This is in the last movement of a four-movement piece. Mendelssohn wrote this when he was 16 years old. It's basically two string quartets. So what we're going to see on the stage of Symphony Hall is a quartet from the Gewandhaus, a quartet from the BSO. They're going to get together, and they're just going to jam. This is so much fun. Now, Brian, it's... since you know everything about this, here's a quiz for you. <laughs> okay, sure. Go Where ahead. is the kickoff for this collaborative week going to be heard? Where yes, would that be? That would be at the Boston Public Library. I on what believe. show in particular? I, it might be on Boston Public Radio. Monday, even. February 5th, we will be at the library, a special Monday edition with some of the leaders of both of these orchestras, including Andres Nelson's and others, okay, I'm gonna to celebrate I this week. I actually didn't know they were going to be on your show. Well, you do now. <laughs> I knew they were doing an event down there. I didn't yeah. realize that they were going to be on the show. That's awesome. And, yeah, and this really is a huge, kind of unprecedented thing in the orchestra world. So I want to really bring bring people's attention to that. It's great. Okay, and what is that again? Fe- what is, when are the actual concerts? The the BSO concerts are February eighth through tenth, oh. and then the the chamber players concert with the Gewandhaus chamber players is on the next day, the eleventh at Symphony Hall. I'm looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. Brando Donovan. Hey, can I give a tip of the hat to the Boston Public Library and you guys, part of it, and GBH is being there? It's just an amazing place Fabulous. to go. Just go and visit it. Yeah, it's uh, Tuesdays usually by default and Friday mornings for Tuesdays you guys. And, Fridays, right? yeah. and I'm starting to do lives there no, as well on Saturday afternoons. Cool. Beer and wine late on a Saturday afternoon. Marjorie, you're going and to be there. The whole venue beautiful, is beautiful space. It really is. No, it's a, it's a, a tip of the hat to all of the folks here. I know Ben Godley was very much involved in it. John Abbott supporting it. A lot of the people here at GBH supporting these uh, uh, efforts. Linda and Emmerich just giving them a big shout it's out great. because it's hugely important. Anyway, on to my next one which is a group that became famous for its participation in a 1985 release of the wonderful Graceland album. One of the best ever. One of the best albums oh, ever. Not Paul alone Simon. just Paul Simon's work on it, but he incorporated the singing mm-hmm. of a group from South Africa called Lady Smith Black Mambazo. Incorporated them a lot into individual pieces, but left, left them to their own devices in this piece called Homeless. Somebody sing, somebody sing, hello, 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 oh, somebody man. sing. Take me back. Somebody cry, why, why, why? Somebody sing. What year is this? Somebody 85. He traveled there. 85, yeah. yeah so the album yes. came out in 86 or 87. 86 or 87, yeah. So he traveled there in 85 learned about these guys and said, I want to do some of this music. I really, really do. But, but Ladysmith Black Mambaza should not be just defined by Paul Simon. They were been around since 1964, very much involved in all the political and social movements in South Africa, imbuing pride in traditional singing and this beautiful harmony singing. Let's take a listen to uh, this piece uh, that they're going to be performing. Um, many pieces like this on February 11th, by the way, at Sanders Theatre in Cambridge, one of the presentations of world music. Beautiful theatre to see them in. And they really run the gamut uh, from traditional music to more contemporary music. We might hear something actually to take us out of this segment a little later on. But here's something uh, from their absolutely core pure drop, as we call it in Ireland, tradition. Pure drop. Lady Smith's Black Mambaza. 
doesn't what, get any better now. What is I mean, so pleasing? What is so pleasing about that gym? It's just amazingly, it's amazingly accessible for one thing. And there's something about the literal and figurative and emotional resonance of an orchestra like that with that amount of range. So much think, life in it. It is just it really stunning. Is. Ladysmith, Black Mambazo, it's now an entity as opposed to an individual chorus. It is an institution and it's going to survive for many, many years to come. A great cultural exchange happening in Sanders Theatre. Fabulous. Coming up Love on guys. the 11th. Okay, Rob, Rob. Shield, take it away. Well, we're going to have another kind of cultural exchange happening on the 13th of February. One of the nice things about being in Boston as a music fan in terms of surviving a brutal Boston winter is to know that <laughs> the local scene really celebrates Mardi Gras uh, around here. There's always a lot happening around uh, February 13th, Fat Tuesday. And what we have this year is a Boston-based band called the Revolutionary Snake Ensemble. They're playing on the 13th Great at year. Regatta Bar. And this is a brass band that emerges from the New Orleans tradition, but they really put their own twist on it. Very funky, very improvisational. And it's always a good time. They're led by a saxophonist named Ken Field. He started this group up more than 15 years ago. Field does a lot of other work as well in the, in, in the more straight-ahead jazz world and avant-garde. But uh, it's really fun to check out what these guys do. So let's start listening to a little bit of this track. It's called Slippery When Wet. So you had the drums, and now the bass comes in, and it just keeps building and building. Soon the horn is going to come up. Ooh. <laughs> this is so fun. Yeah, everyone's bobbing and dancing in here a little bit, <laughs> and that's what's going to be happening. That's great. When's that, that again? Is great. That is February 13th at Regatta Bar. And a fun thing that they also do is this: everyone in this group, they wear these great New Orleans costumes, shiny garments and beads and hats. So uh, go there on the 13th and you'll really get that New Orleans vibe. Like you know, the Mummers, you know, but way cooler. Philadelphia you know, we're, reference. We're running out of time here know. very fast, but really quickly, is here. there a place people can go to, besides what we're listing on our website, to see music listings? Does the Globe do it? Who does it? You know, not as comprehensively anymore. Yeah. There are things like Who Fish and Facebook does a pretty good job, but That's it. but it does, it does not a comprehensive one. But okay. I got to okay. tell you, what Brian, echoing what Brian says, just go out and support live music, live arts, wherever it's at. Don't even worry about what it gotta is. Go. It's going to be great. And when Marjorie's telling you what's happening, we're going to play Cranberries in honor of Dolores O'Riordan and the song Linger. WCRB's Brian McCreese is the producer of WCRB's Boston Symphony Orchestra uh, broadcast, excuse me, the executive producer of WCRB in concert and host of an interview podcast from CRB, The Answered Question. Rob Postel is associate professor of liberal arts at Berkeley College. Brian O'Donovan is the host of WGBH's A Celtic Sojourn. Thank you so much. All of you, and thank you for listening Thanks, to another guys. edition of Boston Public Radio. Tomorrow, we're going to be joined by Tina Brown, Congressman Mike Capuano, and Meet the Press, Chuck Todd. What is on television, please? Well, Jim Brown. Actually, Tina Brown from uh, Vanity Fair <laughs> fame and New Yorker fame and 
had a business relationship with Weinstein. We'll talk about that. Knew Donald Trump very well. We're going to do that. And the mayor of the city of Boston is going to join me as well to talk about his plans for the uh, Recovery Center on Long Island and a few other things. So it's Tina Brown and Marty Walsh. I want to thank our crew, Chelsea Murs, Amanda McGowan, Tori Bedford, Jason Tereski, Molly Boygon, Christina Biani, and our engineer, John McClaw Parker. I am Marjorie Egan. I'm Jim Browning. Thanks so much for tuning in. Please tune in again tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. Thank you.